just put my football analyst hat on. They don't have as much ability to switch things around like Arsenal do with Niedema, Blacksenius. They can try different formations. Don't think United might have that. They don't have the personnel to do that. Subscribe to the OTB Koyig pod on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right. It's not bang on half past seven. We're a minute late and it's my fault. Good morning to you. I hope you're all very well out there. Uh, Shane, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, Jar. How are things? Well, you see, the problem is, right, the uh, Americano takes like two and a half minutes to make. And Colm, our producer, was like, I'll amble over and just get a coffee before the show. Whereas I, you know. So blame is on Colm 100%? It's not really. It's my, okay. it's my fault. I should have, like, we could have wrapped up our pre-show meeting a little bit earlier. But there's so much to talk about today. Colm says the coffee was for you, but you rejected it. Well, so, I, I, behind the curtain, folks. You got it. You got it. You know, can't be drinking Americanos, it's watered down. True, true. Has yeah, to be yeah. an espresso. Yeah, yeah. I'm going for a cappuccino myself, but sure, look. We'll, uh, well, you're fancy, as we established yeah, yesterday. Of a, a townie. A townie, yeah, yeah. A culty townie, yeah. Um, there's lots to talk about. Mm-hmm. Fury Joshua is going to happen. It looks like now it's official. Um, we kind of heard rumblings of this over the last 24 hours or so, but uh, it has been confirmed for December in Cardiff. Uh, Spurs got beaten in injury time last night. Like, it was very Spursy. You have to you have to say it was a bit Spursy, and the the one of the was it they were bodied in the match report in the Telegraph, where it was like even even by Spurs standards this was remarkable. Like <laughs> ah, you can't be still. We're not we're not doing that, are we? We can't anymore? be surprised at this stage, to be honest. When something like this happens, like Spurs, yeah, Spurs had their chances, but it was one of those games where you weren't massively surprised when Lisbon got the goal laid on and then the second goal was kind of just the the final nail in the coffin but I mean um, there was a save from Hugo Lloris just before that a world class save and then from the resulting corner Sporting Lisbon took the, took the lead so it was kind of one of those goals that you were like okay that was kind of coming Loads of pre-match hype about Marcus Edwards who had been on the books at Spurs and then had gone away like basically completely off Broadway and then eventually worked his way back up to Sporting Lisbon and pretty much hype around this kind of stuff you're like okay I mean how good's he going to be <laughs> and then he goes on a messy-esque run in the first oh. half and nearly scores one of the goals of the season yeah like Pochettino I think when he was younger at, at Spurs literally described him as messy-like um, which was no pressure on a young kid's shoulders but yeah eight years of age joined Spurs a few loan spells one spell at Norwich like he didn't really have much chances at, at Spurs in his original stint there but uh, like a move to someone like Sporting Lisbon a team that's, that has Champions League football you would think for a 23-year-old English player is perfect. Because especially, I'd say when he saw the draw and he saw he was up against an English side, he's like, yeah, that's me in the, the shop window, that's me in the England window. And look, he did himself no fear. No, uh, uh, he basically put himself in Gareth Southgate's mind, front and centre, you'd imagine. I'm not going to say he's in the World Cup squad by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but he's one of these players now that, that, like he was directly asked in the interview after the match last night, look, would you like to return to the Premier League at some point? He said, of course, that's where I'm from. That's that's my ambitions. And he kind of laughed off the England suggestions from the, the pundits in the studio. But There's not a hope that um, Southgate will pick somebody from outside mm. the, the Premier League like that. Like, obviously, Jude Bellingham's going to get in the team, but yeah. Bellingham is a phenom, right? If, if he picked him and he doesn't play, then mm. it's a waste of a squad. And it's like, well, what are, what are you doing shunning our Premier League? Can you imagine what the Telegraph... 
would say. Yeah, yeah. If he picked uh, an Edwards instead of a, a Sancho or a, or a Rashford, oh! like it would just be disgraceful. But um, now no, it might be the right thing to do. He's a quality footballer. Oh, that, like no. I mean, I've seen the highlight last <laughs> night where he's done the best thing he's ever done in his yeah, life, and yeah. we're like, oh, put him in the squad. But like, yeah. <laughs> we're, uh, we jump to conclusions a lot on, uh, on as football fans. But he looked very comfortable on the ball. Looked confident. I actually thought from the post-match interview he was maybe a bit younger than his years. Quite a shy fella. Um, quite uh, introverted it seems as well but um, lovely footballer silky good touch uh, would have been so nice if he got that goal at the end of that move as well it just would have been one of the goals we kind of speak about Sporting was one of the teams that was obviously um, you know oh Ronaldo will play for Sporting happily <laughs> and it's like well you know it turns out they actually have some good footballers yeah. I, I, you know I think the stats were heavily in Spurs favour in the game but yeah. um, from the quality of the chances that were created from what I saw it was like definitely not even 50-50 the, the right team won by virtue of the quality of the chances it did and, and like a, a, one of the interesting conversations that happened in the studio after the match they were kind of um, diving deep on Son Heung-min and whether or not he should be in the Spurs team anymore I think uh, was it Henri or maybe one of the pundits that completely laughed it off and said of course he's in the team but I mean I don't know there's only so much you can keep playing below the standard at which people know you're capable of and still get into the team like the problem for Son is that he set such a high bar in previous seasons with Spurs that were like we know what you can do so keep doing it um, and now he has Richardson in the team who's kind of nabbing all the headlines from him yeah like, Richardson lazy offside a really bad offside yeah last night, it was though. per took the goal well but yeah clearly offside like Son scored a goal in, in the last game I think for Tottenham and, and it was ruled offside uh, no, no, sorry, it wasn't. He was fouled and he was quite clearly through on goal and was so desperately trying to get up onto his feet and, and, and finish off because he just wants a goal. The poor fella has no confidence anymore. Um, and that's what Richarlison clearly has. So it's a confidence game, folks. And, and listen, Son Young Min needs a bit of it. But if he can't, uh, if he can't get, find the back of the net fairly soon, he's, uh, this conversation isn't going away. Did Liverpool get their confidence back last night? We've buried the lead here. Liverpool are back, right? After all of the, the difficulties that we were talking about, we listed them off and they seem to have fixed them quite quickly. A better centre back, a better midfield, and a more active uh, pattern in their forward line with Jada and Thiago yeah. and Joe Gomez on, not, not playing. Who knew that second comment out of the team was going to make everybody better? <laughs> Do you know what? Like, obviously the conversation is, is completely skewed as to, you know, if the Matip goal hadn't gone in, our conversation this morning is entirely different. Liverpool have dropped two points at home. They're in trouble in their group, one point from two games. Um, so obviously the win kind of puts a sheen on the whole thing. I thought they were fairly poor in the final third for most of the game last night. Um, Thiago changed things dramatically obviously he was he was the, the key cog in the, in the machine probably allowed Fabinho a freer role and, and maybe brought him into the game more as well still concerned a little bit about Van Dijk like there was a couple of occasions where he still did that like, almost looks like he's singing Wonderwall at the house party with the hands behind the back and he's just I don't know what it is obviously footballers are putting the hands behind the back to not give away a penalty and have the ball hit their arms he did that he did it during the goal but like the goal was a worldly really yeah but it was how much blame do you put on Trent? I like look. I mean, yeah, okay. But even after Trent is uh, ball watching and going towards the ball as opposed to watching the man, there's still like loads of bodies around. Yeah. You're going to concede goals. You are going to concede some goals. But from Trent, like, if you're a proper right back who knows how to defend, you're either moving right and cutting out the pass, or you're just sticking with. With the go with the player, runner, uh, yeah. which is probably the more obvious decision. Go with the runner, but he has such an attacking frame of mindset that he's he's like, go get the ball. Uh, but he wasn't in the right position to get the ball. So you kind of have to look at his defensive frailties there, Trent. Like, do you start playing Trent? I know Klopp hates this, but do you start playing Trent right wing and, and pull someone else around? They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. But I mean, 
Southgate tried it at one point. At least he can see the benefits of it. But the man doesn't seem to have a defensive bone in his body. Um, I, I, you know, it's like um, it's like Ireland not putting bodies in at the breakdown and accepting that uh, the benefit of this is knock on later. You you have this incredible creative force at right back, yeah. And over the course of the season, he's involved in forty four goals, which is you know one third of all your goals over the whole season. You're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to take that. He's going to concede five to eight. Mm. I'm up thirty five goals. What you know? To give <laughs> ratio, me the using the ratio, yeah, yeah but. I just don't think it's a it's a winning recipe. Like Trent has done great things for Liverpool over the last number of years, but it's starting. It's to, not a winning recipe, okay? Well, sorry, it has been a winning. Is recipe he, is he the youngest player to complete the, the the of every every available medal in football? Is Look, there something like that? He, Did he, somebody do it faster? I'm not sure. The old phrase he owes Liverpool nothing, uh, which is fair. But but I mean, he, he at the minute he has been one of the problems this season. Joe Gomez has been a bigger problem. Let's be honest. But I, and I actually think that um, who are we talking to? Uh, was it Gareth Roberts last week was making the point that if you fix the midfield you're going to have a knock-on impact on the issues around him so he can be got at at the moment because the forward line aren't pressing properly the midfield are too far away from them and the defence are left isolated and like if you if you think back to the Villa game where they they conceded seven basically they punted the ball over the the centre-backs and had somebody running onto it again and again and again and again and again you know yeah, like uh, Thiago being back. In the, we uh, we were speaking on the show I think yesterday about about the fact that you know we're Liverpool fans hoping for too much from Thiago when he comes back into the team. Is he going to be the man that changes everything? He didn't change everything, but he certainly added a lot to that Liverpool team. Jota, I thought was good yesterday. I think Jota is really important to them, and like he's only going to get better and more fit. Yeah. Uh, the the questions around the eighty million pound man is definitely like he, he could do with a goal. Speaking of players, he could do with a goal. Yeah, like Salah's goal is very important for them. I think. When, when Nunez scores on the opening day of the season you're thinking quality signing this is fantastic yeah. but I mean since then he struggled and when you saw himself and Firmino coming on I think I thought this is going to be the, the push to Liverpool leading this game they eventually went on, went on to win the game so Klopp was uh, vilified in, in what he'd done but I just don't know like Simicast I thought was brilliant last night as well another player who's probably not mentioned enough maybe and very comfortable on the ball does good things added different dimension to Liverpool's team last night as well like Alisson was trying the kind of long pass out to the wing to, to Jota they were getting a few chances off it um, but yeah the, the Salah goal as you mentioned that, that's that's important for his confidence I mean, his first it's his fourth goal in all competitions this season first goal in the Champions League in 7 or 8 so I mean he needed that goal as much as anyone but yeah I just don't know is this uh, it, we're not going to know is this the turning point for Liverpool because of the lack of fixtures they're going to have for the next couple of weeks yeah so it's, it's a fair point, but it's a good time for them to have a lack of fixtures, isn't it? Yeah, they probably needed time to bounce back. And, and like Klopp was, um, he was understated in the interview afterwards. I think he knows he knows that this isn't the this isn't the turning point for them. But I mean, they need they need a bit of time. They need more games. They need a chance to to put things right. And I just don't think they're the finished article at all yet. But because if if that game had been drawn last night, I mean, Daily Blind had a great chance with ah. ten fifteen minutes left, and he could have. Yeah celebrated in front of the cop as a former Manchester United player and really ripped the piss out of them um, which would have been a bit of a, a heart-wrenching one for the Liverpool fans to take but I mean the Mohamed Kudus goal was so so good uh, proper number 9 finish um, yeah there's not much Van Dijk could have done I'm, I'm probably a bit harsh on him with the hands behind the back thing but it's just something that's, that's kind of we're not used to seeing Van Dijk under pressure and he, he kind of in the post-match interview as well alongside Matip you can sense he's He's hearing the criticism. He's under, he's understanding that he's under fire a little bit recently, 
and he seems to hate it. Mm. He really hates it. I mean, look, maybe that's what he needs, you know? It's a kick up the hole and he's going to respond accordingly. <laughs> well, he's not used to hate like that. I mean, if you're, if you're being called for three or four seasons the best centre-back in the world, and all of a sudden you're having a year where you're probably at fault for a couple of goals that Liverpool have conceded, uh, people are almost taking the, the piss out of some of your defensive frailties, um, you're not going to like it. No. It's funny how <clears throat> the knock-on impact... <coughs> excuse me. It's funny how the knock-on impact of like three or four players playing well transforms everything. Yeah. If he starts playing well, and if Jota's in the team running around, pressing creating uh, chances for Salah who then understands oh I've got somebody who's on my wavelength yeah and then you stick Thiago in the team <laughs> it, it's it, like it's you know we were talking yesterday how, how quickly it can turn around and I'm not saying it's turned around yet but big win big important win they were clearly the better team and yet they were also lucky to win which is a yeah. very peculiar thing that you can say about Liverpool when they're at their best is that sometimes they don't batter teams mm. and it does require a late goal but they get so many late goals that you can't say it's an accident that those late goals happen and you often have to talk about performance and how performance matters and, and last night like the performance did matter they were the better team uh, and if they you know if Liverpool got the late winner last night and they probably hadn't been the better team you'd have kind of questioned everything but because they absolutely deserved the win and Matip Matip alongside Van Dijk is clearly the answer compared to oh, he's sensational I mean he's such a good footballer uh, and Thiago with the white boots I think that adds a different dimension anyone who has ever won white boots in a football pitch will know that it makes you faster uh, automatically adds a few miles per hour to your, to your max speed so I think Thiago with the white boots is important I'd be interested to take Laro's take on the white boots situation but um, yeah different things clicking for Liverpool still, still more to go you'd probably give them a grade of maybe B- minus. yeah and plenty of room for improvement mm. 7.44, here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you this morning. Um, we have Alana Canan coming on talking to us about the situation in Galway. Mark Lawrence is going to join us at 10 past 8. We have the latest installment of Virtual Insanity, which is on the hottest of hot streaks at the moment. We are going to start our countdown to the URC season. Going to go around the four provinces with Keen Tracy from the Indo. And then Tim Vickery was on the show last night. We're going to play out a little bit of that as well. A reminder, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Shifty Lad says, Good morning, lads. Becoming a good combination in the mornings. Upbeat, at least. Have your own points of view. Enjoy your coffee, Jerry. Lashing a backyard like a man. <laughs> I think um, men and women drink coffee the same way, Shifty, but I get your point. Uh, upbeat, at least, or upbeat, at least have your own opinions. <laughs> or yeah, upbeat, which at least, we, which have your own that? opinions. Is, he, is it a compliment? Is it an Where insult? do we go from here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, will Southgate pick Ivan Tony? Asks Kevin McConnell. I think he's going to pick him for the friendlies, right? He has to stick him in now. Yeah. Like, if, if you were Southgate, you're sticking your man in the squad after his performance last night for sporting. You're sticking Tony in the squad. You're giving them a run and saying, you could be a bolter here for the World Cup in three months' time. Yeah. Because if you're in the form of your life and I'm picking players who are slightly out of form, like, I mean, obviously, I, I love Jack Grealish, uh, but... It's hard to stick him in the team at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't be a starting player, but certainly you have to try out these players in a World Cup year. And and like, I mean, he's closer to a team than Harry Maguire is to a team right now. You have to you have to pick players that are playing regular club football, playing well for their clubs as well. Tony and Tony and Edwards are two of those players. So I just love the hullabaloo around the English squad picks because there there is no squad in world football, international club that. Uh, there is so much analysis, maybe understandably so. English people love their football, but uh, there's just so much in, in it. And uh, Southgate is a, is a demon no matter who he picks and leaves out. Todd Bowley's in the papers today um, talking about an all-star game, a north-south game. Now, I'm not sure he's actually... Right, so he's saying that in, in Major League Baseball they make $200 million from a Monday and a Tuesday, 
right? And that's the the All Star game. And he's like, well, you know, we could do the same thing. I think it's it's a bit of a throwaway comment, but actually, he was also talking about the relegation being decided by a four-team tournament at the bottom of the Premier League rather than straightforward relegation for the three clubs, right? Yeah. Which is far more radical than the North-South game. North-South game doesn't really matter. It's like just an excuse to whatever. And will it happen? I don't know. I mean, my immediate response is um, the Charity Shield already happened and it's supposed to be raising money for charity and then Soccer Aid is a thing which is completely separate to football but actually does raise loads of cash and is kind of the the English equivalent of the North-South All-Star game without having the superstar players. Yeah. Do you know? But the, it's the All-Star game that's grabbing all the headlines. Like, even Klopp was asked about it after the match last night. He says, oh, does he want to bring the Harlem Globetrotters as well? Yeah. Uh, no one cares about North-South. Like, no, not really. You know, so it's London versus Manchester and Liverpool. And Man United and Liverpool and City all playing the same team. That's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? I mean... Against London, London clubs plus, maybe plus you'd Wolves. Be, you'd be interested in seeing it, but, like, it's going to be squads of 22 players and a, sec- a different 11 at half-time, and no one cares. The no. outcome doesn't matter. Players don't care, fans don't care, the managers, whoever the managers will be, don't care. Uh... Nobody cares. The the All Star uh, game in the NFL used to have some kind of spice to it, and then slowly it got diluted because yeah, it's such a violent sport that no one cares. Maybe in Major League Baseball they do. I know in in basketball they manage to like they have the the dunk competition and all that kind of stuff too. Mm. Um, there are there are ways to to change the Premier League and, and improve for the better, and maybe take some learning from from. American sports but I, I don't think an all-star game is it I even heard the lads on the show last night talking about ad breaks you know improving the fan experience like there was, there's been talk of halftime shows in Champions League finals and that sort of thing which is just a bit ridiculous but there are ways to improve football without completely getting carried away Todd Bowley, Todd Bowley look to be fair to me he's an American coming in to a, to a London football club He's got his little ideas and he wants to, to spout them. And, and here he is. Yeah, I think that um, I think that, that we'd, you'd be stupid to throw them out too quickly here. But there will be a na- massive knee-jerk reaction. Ah, <laughs> oh, here comes the yank again. Yeah, yeah. That's my field ball. <laughs> and actually, there's probably some stuff in it. He, he did say that he's a big admirer of Manchester City's multi-club model. So you can expect Chelsea to start buying clubs around the world. Mm. Um, the All-Star game comes up as like something... Um, uh, Ultimately, I hope that the Premier League takes a little bit of a lesson from American sports and really starts to figure out why wouldn't we do a tournament with the bottom four teams? <laughs> I think this is interesting. No? Uh, yeah. I, the playoffs is the, is the most exciting thing yeah. for the last three months of the season because we always know, give or take, I'd say three seasons out of every 15, one out of every five, there's like a title race that goes past March. And so then everybody's like, oh, the relegation battle this season. What's going to happen? And then it's like, ooh, uh, and who are the teams between uh, third and sixth in the championship? And that's then wild. Yeah. So wouldn't it be wild if there was like... It becomes controversial the moment that the first year they do it, the fourth bottom team in the Premier League loses their playoff semi-final and then loses the playoff final and gets relegated and everyone's like, okay, they finished... 17th in the Premier League usually a 10 points clear of the team who were bottom yeah, yeah. that's that's the issue um, but then again people get used to change fairly quickly um, I'm sure they get used to this idea but yeah I'd like I'd like to try some of, the, some of these ideas I don't know about all of them um, like yeah it certainly adds a little bit of interest but don't if it's not broke don't fix it I don't know if, if the relegation battle is broken obviously some seasons it kind of peters out and ends with nothing but that's just the way it happens and uh, three teams are the three most brutal teams in the league and deserve to go down so I don't know I, I like Todd Bowley I like the, the fact that he's coming out and kind of 
dishing out ideas. Um, some of them will stick, some of them won't. But yeah, more power to him for, for bringing them up. Chris Cal says Nunez is a second-rate Ian Orman droid. He's a per man's Divac Origi, I think I described him as in the, the uh, pre-show meeting. Uh, There's your headline. Possibly harsh, but... but and and this is the thing about, about Nunez, he needs he needs game time and he's not exactly had enough game time. No, uh, and now there's no games for a while. Well this is the thing. He like he, he needed confidence like he's only he still only got that one goal from, from the the first game of the season. He needs he needs to hit the back of the net. Um I, I like he didn't look the he didn't look like he was lacking confidence on the pitch at all last night. He's kind of a smirk on his face when he misses a chance or something goes awry. Um yeah, he's got he's got a little bit of something, and it's very very early days. I, I, we just we love jumping to conclusions as football fans, and I think he'll come good in the end. Kevin McStay is in all the papers today because um, he had his official unveiling press conference last night, and he's talked about what the role of his um, Harlem Globetrotters backroom team is going to be, and it looks like they've got a plan. They they have a serious plan. So they had this launch uh, last night in Castlebar. So himself and Damien Cassidy and Stephen Rochford were, were there, and like. It, it, just interesting to me how they've kind of handed out the roles and split up the roles because you see the strength of the backroom team and you're thinking right they all have to have their own roles so obviously Kevin McStay takes the, the main role coach and assistant manager then Stephen Rochford coach and selector Donny Buckley as you see up on screen uh, Damian Mulligan then is coach and selector with additional responsibilities for club liaison Liam McHale is coach and selector with additional responsibility for county under 20 liaison so they have all these people who are going to report back from those uh, particular sectors you've got the head of medical assistant head of medical Head of Athletic Performance, Neil Fitzpatrick is in as well as a psychologist for the for the Mayo team, lead physiotherapist, they've got a nutritionist, logistics, communication, and then at the bottom, further appointments in the areas of strength and conditioning, performance analysis, and goalkeeper coaching will be made shortly. Like, if you showed that piece of paper to a Gaelic football team from the 60s or 70s, they'd be like, what in the name of Jesus is going on here? But that's just the way football is at the minute. And, and I liked what Kevin McStay said last night, he was kind of... Almost saying that they want to have a very, very open relationship with the media. They like they are essentially stewards in this role for Mayo Football. They don't want to um, take the power and, and hide behind the iron curtain, um, that green and red curtain. It's just not going to happen this year. I think it's going to be, it's going to be more open from Kevin McStain. He, and I like that because Kevin McStain has worked in the media. He knows that we crave little nuggets of information from inside GA camps. Notoriously difficult to get those nuggets. Yeah, you also get to control the narrative a bit more. Yeah. Like and uh, I think trusting those players, like they're they're very trustworthy. Anytime you speak to any of them, they're all excellent communicators. They're really interesting people. Yeah. Like, you know, the Dubs made it a big thing. Whatever you say, say nothing. And <laughs> um, and then they retire, and it turns out they're all like, are, are when in that intervening period between them winning the All Ireland and the league starting again, you'd realise that they're all great fellas. And, yeah. And the, did they? Did we really benefit from them? Like, oh, you know. Uh, going down to Carlo is really going to be a tough game for us. Like there are better ways of saying that. Yeah, be more open. Um, but if you look at the strength of that backroom team, I mean, Rochford could do a job as a as a main man himself. Yeah. Like Donny Buckley was in with Monaghan last year. He was obviously in with Kerry the year before. Damien Mulligan is highly respected within the county. It was Bill Mullet, I think he was over. So knows the club scene inside and out in Mayo. And then Liam McHale, for obvious reasons, is, is a man who knows the county very well uh, and has that kind of link already with the county under 20 team. So and that's, look, will, will this be enough to get them over the line? I mean, no. It's going to come down to the players on the field in the end. Well, are they putting the players in the field in the best position to succeed? You think certainly they have, they have strength there. 
Um, well, at least they have at least they have a management team in place. And like you're hearing rumours this morning, the Irish Independent reporting as well. Conor McKeown talking about a couple of names in the in the ring for Donegal and Monaghan. That go on, yeah. Rory Kavanagh might be the the man in Donegal. Like that, I think Martin, Rory, Rory had initially turned it down, had he? He had. Like, but it's it's, it's funny as the longer that these uh, vacancies lie open, names come back into the fold, and maybe people change their mind. Situations change over a matter of weeks. Uh, Rory Cavan is highly respected obviously within the county led St Unions to a, to a club championship title last year took over them in late 2020 Martin McHugh's name hasn't gone away fully but it appears Rory Cavan maybe is edging slightly closer towards it uh, an ex-player as well seems to be the, the man in the mix in Monaghan this morning now that could change by tomorrow morning but Vinnie Corey uh, is, the, is the man mentioned still playing club football with Clintibbert he was on Banty's backroom team as a selector um, so it's it's continuity to some degree um, an inside man as well so interesting that Donegal and Monaghan both going for the yeah. potential, potentially going for the inside man so you think man. this is it now is that is that well, your the, your the, understanding is that the fee needs to turn down well the, the, the talk is Monaghan will <coughs> the county board seem to think they will have a manager within the next 10 days ok so that is I mean, it's, it's not yeah. that fast it's not that fast but they've said within 10 days there will be a new manager um, they should get Park Duffy involved in the backroom team shouldn't they somewhere absolutely like some kind of 100% uh, like manager you know the way that rugby teams have managers to yeah. look after logistics and stuff Like there's so much there's, yeah there's a lot of people in, within Monaghan we mentioned Niall Moyne yesterday but there's people within Monaghan that you could utilise and uh, yeah certainly those are two Pat Flanagan as well I, see, I think seems to be the name kind of his name hasn't gone away from the Common post so um, yeah the three Division One counties desperately looking for managers, but uh, appear to be closing in now. If we're still sitting here this time next week and Monaghan haven't got it over the line, I'll be I'll be um, starting to cry. Write more poetry, yeah, possibly writing more a song. Poetry. Yeah, we, I want a song with a, a guitar. Right, right. Well, can you, well, can, and, you can you play and, guitar and boots? If you can play the guitar, I'll, I'll sing yeah, along. Unfortunately, badly. Okay. Not, e- not even one chord. With a Garth Brooks fan, let alone three. All right, 7.55. Fury only wants the Joshua fight because he knows he'll win. Coming out of his BS retirement should be for a bet with the Ukrainian who's up for it. Joshua's not the fighter he was a few years ago. Who's going to pay to watch this fight anyway? Well, I'm definitely going to pay to watch that fight. Like, there's 100%. I think, and a lot of people are in the same boat. We want to see it. Like uh, Joshua has it all to lose. Uh, Fury's going to kill Joshua, like metaphorically. You know, obviously. uh, Sorry, I shouldn't have used that language, but uh, he he will batter um, Joshua, and it'll be a good fight. Yeah, like Joshua. I I actually was really enjoying the Joshua music fight the last time out. Myself and a few friends went over to the house to watch it, and like. He, he was he was very good, Joshua, throughout the fight. It was just the post-fight antics that you were like, oh, please. Well, he must have been very bad. It can cost. Well, that, well, that, that's why pe- maybe people shouldn't be have a microphone stuffed in their face after no. going twelve rounds with a heavyweight boxer. No, true. And like, look, you know, there's a myriad of reasons why somebody might behave like that in the aftermath of a fight. Uh, Seven fifty-seven. Let's turn our attention to uh, football in Galway. Alana Canan has been covering this story on the latest uh, episode of Koi Gig um, and there's been developments in the last 24 hours or so where Galway United have issued a statement about the fact that um, there may or may not be a senior team playing in the Women's National League next year. Alana, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Hi guys, how are you? A little bit confused, I have to say. I read the statement from Galway United saying we are united, we'll continue to be united and we're very interested in making sure that uh, we have women's football in the club. But they didn't commit to having a senior team playing in the Women's National League next year. What's your understanding of what we're supposed to read into Galway United statement yesterday? Yeah, I think it is widely believed that Galway United will be the ones to hopefully take over Galway WFC. But as you say, there was kind of a bit of contradictory language in it, in that they say they fully understand the significant challenges 
both financial and operational, associated with fielding a senior and underage squads on a national level. So kind of letting it be known there that they do realise it's a lot of money, effort and um, personnel that will have to go into this if it does go ahead. So you'd wonder, is that kind of a cry to see, can they get some people involved? Um, basically, from what it can be understood from the existing board, there's kind of five people there um, and they seem to kind of have said that while they've done all this great work and which they have, that they don't seem to be interested in kind of continuing on. So it'll be kind of interesting to see what happens there. Also interesting that they've mentioned that um, that they have to field the three teams. So that would be incorporating as well, I presume, the under-17 and the under-19 teams, which um, have a serious amount of young talent as well. Um, but you'd wonder, there was no view there to kind of a longer-term team. Uh, thing as to academies or that kind of thing and you'd also wonder if they were to take on the same people that have already been involved would the kind of same lack of forward thinking maybe stick around with that we saw what happened with three Fahi who everyone including myself thought it was a great appointment but as we all know that didn't last too long so yeah kind of a contradictory statement in that you say they say their development are committed to the development of women's football in the area and that they'll now begin the process of dialogue. But you just kind of wonder why that dialogue hadn't maybe hadn't happened before the original statement from Galway WSE was released. Yeah. It, 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 from the outside, this appears like there's um, a bit of brinkmanship happening where uh, the, the club have decided that they can't continue. And I don't know, is it to, to maybe accelerate the process where they where they button up against some kind of frustration that Galway United weren't automatically stepping in is this is it a way of making everybody in Galway aware of the fact that actually uh, an opportunity exists here or potentially a bit of a disaster exists here for women's football and unless everybody gets their heads together really quickly and somebody comes in and shows some leadership that nothing's going to happen were they were they shaming Galway United a little bit into you know getting Okay, this is actually real. This is happening, and unless you step yeah. in and fix this, nothing's going to happen. Is is there an element of that? I think there is a little bit, like you say, kind of a bit of a bargaining chip. But in in that same realm, it is kind of a bit interesting because it's like when teams um, put in an interim manager until the end of the season because like nobody knows where their long term future lies, and then also in the short term, they've brought all this media attention upon themselves that could well have been avoided had that dialogue taking place behind the scenes uh, but in that like in that like we're saying it looks like that may have come about as a result of maybe trying to jolt that into action from Galway United um, it would be an interesting one to see them take it over uh, you know like there are 10 teams in the Women's National League right now and 7 of them, seven of them are affiliated with um, men's sides I suppose that kind of raised questions as to whether they should be mandated to be affiliated. But then you have the likes of P-Mount United who wouldn't have a, a male equivalent. DLR Waves would kind of play at the Belfield Bowl. So you'd think that the obvious option would be UCD. But then it's like, are the FAI uh, insistent that they persist this one club kind of model? Because there are other teams, and we talked about this on Koigig, trying to get into the Women's National League for a number of years now. Um, Shamrock Rovers and Cove Rambers I think just to name a few but there's lots more too and all of those uh, have to be have proper academy structures to enter you know the right coaching systems and even then they might not get the opportunity because I know they're not keen to 
let a load enter in one season and see a few of them collapse, like let's say like happened Kilkenny just a few years ago. So yeah, obviously that mindset can't be enacted retrospectively uh, with the likes of other teams already in the league. But it is interesting that if they were to form as like a completely new entity, and I'm not saying that applies to Galway in this case, that they would have to have all these kind of uh, structures in place. It's funny, like Alana, when the statement came in yesterday to the office, I think three or four of us all read the statement and saw it in maybe three or four different ways in terms of what it meant. Like, obviously, we don't really know at this stage, but like, would you take from the fact that the statement has been released that it is more likely than not that a team will be put in next season, or would you say that Galway United are releasing this statement maybe because of local pressures being linked with them and, and taking over the, the women's team, or is this is this a positive step? Yeah, I, I I'd say it is quite it's quite likely. Let's say that uh, this will actually come off because um, even from what you're kind of hearing, but there are, is a lot of local investment, like you were mentioning there at the start. I know I saw a lot of local Galway councillors and um, local people in general were very active on Twitter saying that um, you know this would be such a shame and it would be a disaster if Galway WSC weren't to enter next year, given all the talent that they have and. Like they've been in the league for, I think it's 10 years since the inception of it now. So really, like it would be a disaster to see them not come out for that. Just an interesting one as well, though. I saw there um, on their social media just yesterday that they are looking to do some fundraisers to fund the remaining, I think it's just five games. They're looking to do a golf classic fundraiser. So you'd wonder how bad the situation is there. I know there was quotes during the week from the chairperson that said that they won't get change out of, 160,000 this year. I'd just love to see how that compares to other WNL teams. I know we probably wouldn't get that, but um, like there is a FAI uh, grant they get there of about 50,000, I believe. And then, you know, they have a lot of sponsors. You can even see on the original statement. So I just wonder how that will compare to other WNL teams. And I'm not saying that the investment shouldn't be there. It absolutely should but just um, where are they making use of the money? And um, yeah, if Galway United are to take it on, uh, will they kind of implement the same cost structure? I think the, the, the key line is Luke Comer and Comer Group have expressed their commitment to support the continuation of women's football at both senior and underage levels in Galway. Mm. Like, that's kind of the lead here mm. in a way. Because once you've <clears throat> once you said that, it's very difficult to go back and say, well, we said that, but like actually we didn't mean... We didn't mean senior, senior. We meant, oh, we'll have a team. Yeah. It'll be like five aside or something. It's like everybody takes that to read that there's going to be a women's national league team. Galway United is an all-inclusive football club, a club for all of us, and we will be united. It's hard to read that any other way than, look, okay, mm. this is maybe not how we would have handled it. Yeah. And the fact that it's so close to the end of the season as well, you would suggest that there is a, there is a time limit on this, that, that, that you know, releasing yeah. a statement means that something has to be done fairly sharpish, Alana. I guess as well it was prefaced though by that financial statement that they do understand there's a lot of financial restraints and not restraints but that it would take a lot of work and personnel and effort but like there are other things that I suppose could be looked at but it is interesting that no one is kind of floating them about. I know Sliger Rovers uh, to facilitate more people coming to the area, the women's team linked up with, it's now known as ATU so the local university you know maybe that would be an option for Galway And then, you know, you could also question, you know, people were, it was kind of being floated that it would benefit Sligo for Galway not to have a team that maybe those players would enter that kind of 
um, team instead. But really, the travel commitments would be far too fierce there because let's say the likes of Savannah McCarthy, who's injured at the minute, but one of their standout players um, is from Kerry. And there's an awful big difference from travelling to Kerry to Galway than Kerry to Sligo. So you'd look at, you'd, you'd imagine they would go elsewhere. So as we say, like, for there not to be a team in Galway would be disastrous. But I think, yeah, you can read into that statement there. And uh, you can imagine, I'd say, that there hopefully will be a statement in the coming weeks saying that uh, Galway United or some other entity, as they're saying, will take it over. That geographical point is an interesting one because like, even Shane Keegan was on Football Saturday with us recently and he was talking as the Cove Ramblers manager about how you know, he's almost hoping that Cork City get promoted from the first division because obviously then there's the pool of players that will need to join Cove geographically speaking. Um, maybe it's not quite the same from, for, from Sligo Rovers and Galway's perspective but regardless of what way you look at the geography, Alana, it would be a disaster for women's football in the West if Galway were to not have a team. It would be, and I think uh, women's football, kind of women's national league in Ireland wide, really shame because it would be such a step back, uh, given all the progress that has been made in recent years and all the media attention that's now coming upon it as well. I think it's interesting because you know we're seeing so many players go overseas, and obviously there is um, quite a lot of let's say pressure on the um, most talented WNL players to do so. You know, if they want to have hopes of getting into the Irish team or anything in that kind of regard, they'd ha- kind of have to do that. But there are other options as well. Like we have so much homegrown talent and while they are well capable of going overseas, you know, there's this likes of um, the Sky Bursary Programme now. I'm pretty sure they announced that Ella Malloy, uh, who's actually one of the under-19s, and you'd see her listed, listed in the senior team. She plays for Wexford. But um, I think the Sky Bursary Programme, that will keep the likes of Alan Malloy in the Women's National League for longer, which many people kind of wouldn't agree with because she'd get her expenses paid and her degree. I think she's going to UCD, but she'll still be able to play football in Wexford. Mm. And then you add in on top of that the uh, uh, line during the week that the league might go semi-professional so, you know, it is kind of all going one way and in one way uh, incentivising people to stay in the Women's National League too. OK, that, that semi-pro uh, element hasn't fully been teased out. The first we heard of it was mm. the um, Galway Women's uh, chairperson on Galway Bay FM saying, oh, that's happening next year and we won't be able to afford that. And that's kind of one of the things that's accelerating our decision. How, how does semi-professionalism manifest itself with the Women's National League could be anything from we're hearing 50 quid a week for the players like which yeah. you know is is barely expenses really isn't expenses for, for um, mm. um, training so we'll see exactly what comes from that and, and where that goes but uh, on balance it sounds like Goa United are trying to rally support to have a women's team next year in the league is that your read of this? Yeah definitely I believe so yeah Alright Alana we'll leave it there thanks very much Thank you it's Alana Canan there. It's nine minutes past eight this morning here on OTBAM, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We'll talk about the uh, Champions League games tonight. It's Graham Potter's first Champions League game ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I'm, well, I suppose you shouldn't be surprised unless he supports a club, but uh, hasn't ever attended. It's not like even as a tourist go to... Yeah, you'd think even as a manager you'd maybe go down to one that's close by at some stage. I'm, I'm going to be tuning in to the, to the, the Rangers game to... Um, to see what exactly happens after the minute silence for the Queen, will they? Will someone press the button and and <laughs> oh, yeah. get the national anthem going? Not Flower of Scotland, of course. The the other national anthem, the God Save the, the King slash Queen. Um, that's going to be that's going to be interesting. Um, 
so yeah, it's 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 all eyes on Ibrox. But yeah, even the Bayern Munich supporters yesterday with their banner weren't ah fair play to them. They weren't. I think that just reading what the banner says in English: last minute match delays and bans because of a Royal's death. Respect fans. I mean, it's it's hard to disagree with them when you get the last minute cancellations and you've booked your flights and accommodation. The banner was in English. Sorry, the banner was in English. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I was able to read exactly the translation so but well. That's that. Like, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, they're like, we want this. We want everybody to realise this, and we're making a statement that's not just about us. It's about everybody. Yeah, uh, you gotta love the German football fans. <laughs> They've got it going on. Heart and sleeve. Uh, so. Mark Lawrence is up next, but during the ad break, you're going to hear a clip from the latest episode of Koi Gig, where Karen Duggan and Kathleen McNamee joined Alana and talked about um, Piemont's narrow victory over Shelburne at the weekend. We uh, obviously were talking about the goal yesterday. Uh, the Koi Gig pod on OTB Sports in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Back after this. OTB AM. Right, it's 14 minutes past eight. We're turning back to football. Are Liverpool back? That's the question after a 2-1 home win last night against Ajax. Mark Lawrenson, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Obviously, a little bit of relief as much as anything. Yeah, what's the relief? What, what's the nature of the relief? Is it about the returning players from injury, the quality of the performance, the results, a bit of all three? Results. Because if you, know, if you think about it, if we draw one point from two games... Wouldn't be good, wouldn't be healthy. So I think just the fact they got the game over the line and got the points as much as anything, performance was better. But then, you know, it needed to be a lot, lot better, didn't it? And I think you could see by uh, Klopp's reaction at the end of the game as well, it, you know, it wasn't the old beating of the chest, running to the cop. It was just one of utter relief and live to fight another day, basically. We've been talking about the problems that Liverpool have uh, day in, day out now, basically since the start of the season. And yeah. they they did seem like, on the whole, if you were to take them all together, fairly insurmountable. The, the energy's gone, the control in midfield is gone, the defence is in trouble. The only one who was actually playing quite well was Alisson, was, was the general consensus. And then, last night, you add in Jota's energy, you add in Thiago's control... And Joel Matip comes back and it's like, well, actually, all of a sudden, all those problems seem to be disappearing quite quickly. Yeah, they're not disappeared, have they? But they've certainly minimised the problems, most definitely. I mean, Matip has always been, for me, the best best player to play alongside Van Dijk because um, Matip is very much a player who kind of plays for himself. And I don't mean that in any other way. It's just that he has to concentrate on himself to get the performance. So... You know, he doesn't. He can't worry about the centre back playing alongside him, which is Van Dijk. Thiago, you know what I think him. I do think he's brilliant. So, you know, you look around the dressing room last night before you come out to play, and you look in Matic's there. Thiago's back. Jota with his energy and his ability to ghost into space and score goals, and all of a sudden they looked a better team. But you know, it's it's progress. But that's why Klopp, I think, reacted the way he did at the end of the game, which was yes, boys, three points. But you know what? We need to up the level of intensity, most definitely. It's hard for it's hardly groundbreaking, Mark, for us to, to dwell on on how big an impact Thiago has when he's in that team. And spoke about the white boots earlier as well. He just looked the part. I don't know if you were a white boots man back in your day, but he he, no. he, he controls he controls the game and he allows for the likes of Fabinho, for example, a little bit more freedom. He he makes the players around him look and play better. Well, I think it's one of those. You know, when you play with an outstanding player. You're looking all the time to try and help him because you know if it's possible at all, he'll get the ball to you. That, that's the most important thing, especially if you, you know, you're one of the front three. You look up and see Thiago's got the ball and you start your movement because you think you know he's going to find me. Um, 
and he, he makes such a difference. It's just it's now a matter of trying to keep him fit because without him, we, we lack well, we lack so many different things. But we like the fact that you know he creates opportunities. Um, he makes the game look easy as well. He gives you it gives you the ball where you want it, not where he wants to pass to you. So. It's a big difference. And just on the white boots, I think the first two, weren't they, weren't they Tommy Smith and Alan Ball? Um, Tommy, obviously, Liverpool and Alan Ball at Everton, I think you're fine. So way before my time, gents. Uh, and did Tommy Smith get kicked in the air a lot for wearing white boots? I would say never. Because <laughs> they were too afraid of getting kicked back. <laughs> Poof, they'd probably already been kicked before, <laughs> before they even thought about it. Don't worry about that. Uh, the, the, the Jada... Um, being back at the team is is important and really interesting. Um, it's a terrible comparison, but he reminds me a bit of Dennis Irwin in that, like, you always know he is going to play at the exact level that he's capable of, and he's always yeah. going to be dependable, and that's a very, very high level. So if you stick that back in the team, and particularly the relationship that he, he's had with, with Salah, it's like Salah just felt a bit more comfortable last night because he's looking up and he's like, oh, I know you. I, I, yeah. I know what you're going to do here. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a, he's, a, he's a really good player. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. And um, it's just the other thing, he'll get your goal, which is important because he's in, in the front three. He goes into positions in the box. He's, he's extremely good in the air for a man with, you know, obviously, I don't even think he's, what is he, about 5'10, something like that. So maybe not even that. And he's, he's, as you say, I mean, if you get, if you get 10 outfield players, seven and a half, eight out of 10, with the quality that Liverpool have, they'll win the majority of the games. It, it really is that simple. I, I'm never a big stats person, but it, it's got to be because if they're all getting seven or eight with the ability that they've got, then they're you know they're outstanding players, and that makes therefore an outstanding team. Klopp talked specifically about how they were not as compact this year as they have been in previous years, and you know everybody's been pointing to the fact that they've been running far less than their opponents. Um, mm. what, what, which is first, a chicken and the egg? Like, is the the team not compact because they're not running? Are the team not running because they're not compact and everybody's doing their own thing? I just don't think they're working as hard as as, as they did last season or, or or in all the seasons underneath him. Um, and you know, I think they miss from that regard. Obviously, they miss Henderson, who I, mean, I don't know what his stats are, but he seems to cover every blade of grass. Um, so. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's at that level, it's like 5% difference. And that 5% difference is either good or bad, depending which way it is. So, um, look, he's now got, I think, 1st of October, Brighton at home is, is the next game. Um, so he's got time for the, in terms of most of the other injured players to try and get back. Also, the ones who've just got back in the team to kind of, uh, up their running stats and training, etc. So he'll it, feel so much better because you know he's now got a little bit of uh, breathing space in which to, you know, to try and improve the team in in terms of obviously chasing the opposition down and making it more difficult. I mean, um, I thought they should have all played last Saturday, to be honest with you. Which you know we all understand what happened, but um, why why the Premier League didn't say okay, you know, day of morning Friday and then. Obviously, at the games on the Saturday, um, you know, God Save the Queen, all those kind of things, everything, and black armbands. And, and you know what? I think crowds would have been fantastic. But anyway, that's gone. So um, that's, that's going to cause a problem further down the line, though, of course, because this weekend they don't play again because there's not enough police, apparently, to go to Stamford Bridge and look after the crowds. So um, you, do, you do worry because Klopp hates it. He hates that fixture congestion. 
Um, with fixture congestion, you know, every three games played comes injuries. And we know that the problem is at the moment, they're in the predicament, if you want to call it predicament of that, because they've had all these injuries. It's funny, Mark, he's obviously not afraid to call players where needed, Jurgen Klopp, and I think he referenced after the Napoli defeat that maybe eight players of the 11 weren't up to scratch. Um, yeah. And look, he wasn't afraid to drop James Miller, Darwin Nunez as well, didn't start again last night. Like rightly so from your perspective per Nunez yeah. sitting on the bench but he probably needs a little bit of game time he's not going to get that as you said in the next couple of weeks but he needs a bit of confidence yeah he does but I mean he's, he's, he's not helped himself by getting sent off did he against Palace so um, obviously if he hadn't he would probably have been starting most of the game so it's one of those and, it, and he's a new player he's getting used to everybody in the language and all and all those kind of things but at the moment, he probably wouldn't be in the starting eleven, but no one's particularly worried because everybody realises that he is a, he is a class act, and eventually will will come through. And you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with calling players out. Players know themselves, and I, I think what he's got, Jurgen Klopp, he's got a very very honest bunch. Don't get carried away when they when they win. Um, you know, even titles etc. Don't get carried away when they lose. But they're all good, honest players he's got a really really good dressing room so in calling them out they, they, they will have known that was coming and I, I wouldn't mind betting and I don't know but I wouldn't mind betting when most of them came through the door in Naples you know they walked into the dressing room they would have just gone held the hands up and gone sorry not at it tonight whatever you want to say and you know what from a manager's point of view it's great because it's, it's doing his job for him he did say that there have been four or five days of uh, intense truth-telling in the aftermath of the... the... <laughs> yeah, well, you know what truth-telling means, don't you? But be, you might have even taken them all out one by one and given them the banks of Shannon and everything. But look, it, it is whatever it, it needs to be. I mean, I remember in, in, in my day at Liverpool when, uh, when Joe Fagan was assistant manager and we'd had a really bad run. And he just walked into the dressing room and Joe Fagan spoke very, very softly, very, very softly. And you had to almost like cradle into him to listen to what he said to you. But on this particular day, he went absolutely berserk at us. Absolutely. That dressing room with Douglas and Rush and Hansen and Sunes and all those kind of people, he went berserk. But do you know the really clever thing that he did? He just said, some people in this dressing room just aren't doing it. And of course, you sit there and I'm thinking, does he mean me? And then all the other players are obviously sitting there thinking, does he mean me? And, and you know, you can't do that on a regular basis, but occasionally, occasionally, you've got to give it to people. And um, he's probably giving it to people, but in a more up to date way than Joe would have done, shall we say. It's the, the, the pressure, like, and the criticism that has come onto these Liverpool players over recent weeks, Mark. Like Virgil van Dijk when he was standing beside Matip after the game last night in the post-match, post-match interview referenced some of the abuse that he's been getting and, and maybe some of the criticism as well mm. and, and van Dijk look he has to hold his hands up he hasn't performed to the level yeah, yeah. which Liverpool fans know but, but, but clearly the players are listening and, and uh, are hearing that criticism Yeah well also I don't you know never, never ever tell me that players don't read papers and players don't go and I was Instagram or Twitter and all that they do they absolutely totally do. And look, you know, the, the, the people who go on Twitter and, and slaughter Van Dyke basically numpties. Um yes he's not yes he's not playing well. He knows he's not playing well, but you know what what 
why why should they go on there? They you know that they never played at any level of any any particular brand of football. If they, if they had all played in European cups and all those kind of things and won leagues on a regular basis, and it was somebody you know with with it like that kind of uh, standing, you'd, you'd ask yourself, mm, fair enough. But you know anyway, you know he knows he's not playing well. He knows he's like, he, he messed up at Old Trafford. He knows he messed up at one of the other games. So, um, but. Yeah. Thing with football, you cannot be absolutely outstanding every single week, and occasionally your form drops off. The problem with Liverpool is, for quite a lot of them, their form has dropped off, and that's basically why they are and where they are in terms of the league and obviously the Champions League at the moment. Uh, is the form dropping off connected to the fact that the players are tired of Klopp? That um, the seven-year itch yeah. keeps getting mentioned. That uh, are you, are you buying into any of that? That his voice? No, nah, nah, I'm not having any of that because the fellas, the fellas, brilliant, absolutely, totally brilliant. And I've seen him in training, and I've seen what he's like with all the players. And he's, you know what? The best description I've ever heard about him is, is your mate, but he's not your best mate, which I think's you know very, very good. Now, there's, there's none of that. You know, thing about Liverpool as well is you also, as everybody knows, you you play for the club not just the manager, you play for the club and that's so important and that's what you get reminded about by supporters rather than anything else. You know, it's it's their football club. And they don't they don't mind. You know, we had if you remember we uh, Alan Kennedy who scored loads of goals in finals, etc. Wouldn't have been one of the better players in our team. But you know what? Week in, week out, he gave absolutely everything that he had. And and the supporters just like went fine. You, you, you know, maybe you're not, you know, a top class player, but if you do that every single week, they'll buy into it. But look, the players know themselves. They'll have had a meeting themselves, most most definitely as well. And I wouldn't mind, but this is one of those really good times when, you know, maybe Henderson or somebody, if possible, say to them, come on, boys, let's go and have a lunch. You know, let's go and have a lunch. They don't really drink, so... You know, but let's get everybody together and just be all together and have a little chat. And you know, you eventually you get in there and and the mood changes a little bit and people start taking the Mickey out. Oh yeah, you know that ball you played last week and all those kind of things. And you know, it's it's all part of it. The manager cannot do it all the time, which is why I mean, he always references the fact that his dressing room is really, really strong, but also really, really honest. So. You know, your, your Milners and your Hendersons and, and Van Dyke run it. Um, and, you know, they're no shrinking violets, but at the same time, you know, they'll put their hands up and say, you know, you know what, I'm all over the place at the moment. So the honesty is the best thing about it. And people also, I think when you've got really good players and honest players, they help other players to get through the ruts, if that's what you want to call it. The UEFA stats, sorry, from last night. Um, I, I, you know, we we're talking about this. Uh, the Man United game. Man United outran them, and they ran some ninety something kilometers in the game mm-hmm. last night. UEFA tell us this morning they ran one hundred and eighteen. So it's like basically twenty five percent extra, nearly twenty percent extra running stats. I don't know how important the running stats are. I guess it speaks to intensity. It's a very simple metric to go. Oh, it, you know, sometimes people are running stupidly just to yeah. just to influence the GPS, but. <laughs> it certainly, yeah. it certainly seems like they they have upped their intensity a bit, and maybe that's just having a bit more youth in the team. Maybe having Jada and yeah. uh, and Thiago allows Fabinho to do a bit more. You know, these it is a compendium of different factors, 
But certainly, I think Liverpool fans are feeling much better about life this morning than they have been. Yeah, yeah. But that, I mean, that, first and foremost, that's the result, isn't it? So, becoming at 1-1, it would have been, oh, here we go again. So, the result's most important. And you're absolutely right about about the stats. And, and there are there are some cute footballers who just kind of run around a little bit more, but nowhere near the ball just to get the stats up. And what I don't suppose what the stats tell you is, you know, where's he running to or running from or all those kind of things. But it would appear... Obviously, that they've upped the side of their running game, and and if they have, with the quality that they have, then they'll just start to be, they'll start to zoom up the league, won't they? We spoke about uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold at the top of the show this morning, Mark, and and like mm-hmm. whether he was he maybe should have either cut the ball out or tracked the runner for the for the Ajax goal, and he can be caught ball watching sometimes when he's when he's playing as well. Like, is he one of those players that these truths would have been spoken to over the last week or two? Yeah, he will, but. But the bottom line with him is, is what he gives you going forward, you know, and then you have to sacrifice sometimes the fact that he, he makes the odd mistake. And the odd mistake he's made, he's made lately has cost a goal. So he'll be aware of it. Um, you know, Klopp will be aware of it, etc. But do you, do you take away lots, some of that going forward and creating goals for the, for the forwards or forever in the team? Do you, do you say, right... Hold rein that back a little bit and be a bit, little bit more defensive. I think Klopp just realizes he's just well not realizes he knows that you know he's far far better when he's running forward and playing and picking his head up and pa- picking out passes etc. And he's not the best defensively. If he was, he might be one of the best players in the world. But should they change his position? Like, is there any way to kind of adapt to his defensive frailties in in over the last number of weeks and kind of play him play him in a more forward role? No, no. We've had this discussion loads of times and people say, play him in midfield. It's completely different because when you play in midfield, a lot of the time you, you, you kind of side onto the game. You're not, you're not looking at the game, you know, dead straight on, which is what he does. I mean, he's, he's a, an outstanding fullback in terms of going for it. Absolutely brilliant. And he has been since the first day he came into the team. They, they will work on him in training defensively, but... You know, it's 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 one of those. Sometimes you have to accept a player for for what he is, and then maybe I think defensively he's always better when Henderson's played. Um, you know, because Henderson realizes when 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 um, Trent goes forward, he just he just sits in, he just sits in for him. Even though you know he sits in, but he's in the other half and he's capable of getting back if if there's a problem. And the the other thing as well would be that teams have worked out that you know you. You ping that ball, that diagonal ball, into the area where he's left, and you know one of your forwards is onto it. You get a little bit of of joy from it, but look, um, they're not going to change him, and they just they, they will work on him defensively, uh, and well, they work on everybody defensively as a, as a team and, and the shape and everything. But they've just got to sometimes accept the fact that as brilliant as he is, as he is going forward and being creative and even scoring on a regular basis, he occasionally makes mistakes at right back and lets other teams in. With the international break coming up, uh, Henderson's injury probably means he won't be in the England squad and it looks unlikely that um, uh, Trent is going to be in the England squad so they actually get plenty of time over the next month to work on him and kind of iron a bit of that out and off the back of this victory there's a a confidence and so you you think that, um, I don't know, it does feel like they're 
back a little bit and, and while he's going to be annoyed about the uh, run of fixtures that they have at the end of the season if they're in form yeah. at the end of the season yeah. those fixtures will feel you know relatively straightforward to them well and also you know because and we spoke about this before is that you know the, the kind of end of season to the start of this season was really really short and you know he, he runs his players extremely hard in, in in pre-season because you know everything they do there is geared up to play 45, 50, 60, 60 odd games whatever throughout the season so he's now going to have a chance with quite a few of them and maybe building up, you know, the running stats that you've just been talking about. So the ones that obviously don't play in international football. So he'll be pleased about that. But it's like anything. On one hand, you get, you know, that's great. And then the other hand, you get probably maybe a couple of them might come back from international duty uh, wherever they are in the world and and have a couple of knocks. But um, that's the same for everybody, I'm afraid. So um, I think where he'll be disappointed is no game at the weekend you know, to build on last night, you know, like, come on then, boys, you know, and Chelsea would be a really good game for them to have had straight away. New manager for Chelsea, etc. Great expectancy, yeah, but not playing particularly well. And it, it would have been a great game for Liverpool because it's just, come on, boys, now, you know, see what we did in, in midweek. Mm. Let, let's go again. And, and generally, they've had some really good results down at Stamford Bridge. But it is, it is, it is what it is. Um, he just now knows unless it's in training no one's going to get injured before I think Brighton 1st of October is their next is their next uh, Premier League game which is it's is mad when you look at what's going to happen in November yeah just a, a last one of the match for me Mark uh, Costa Simicas is, is a man who a lot of people were impressed by last night a bit of a creative masterclass in some ways not to overstate it mm-hmm. but uh, like Andy Robertson's injury um, is something that he will be looking to capitalise on, but he's given Klopp something to think about after last night's performance, has he? Oh, I think before then, Klopp, Klopp uh, they all know he's a really good player and occasionally they've left Andy Robertson out for for him to play. Listen, he's two-footed, you know, he, could, he can actually play it right back. So, and I, and, I, and I bet he's making that threat known to Trent that, you know, don't worry about me just being a, a fill-in for Robertson. I might be the, the, the fellow who takes over from you. Um, and I know that he, they love him. He's just one of those mad lads that everybody, you know, he's always doing something daft and all those, but he, he just wants to play. And the more games he gets, the better he will get. So, yeah, there, there is the possibility they could play him at, at right back, to be honest with you. And, and the, the young kid they signed well, from Scotland, whose name I can't remember at the moment, but, you know, they think he's going to be a player, but obviously it's, it's a little bit too early for him yet. Ramsey, that guy. Him. Yeah, yeah, not not surround, but yeah. <laughs> last one for you. Todd Bowley did a, a, a conference in New oh, York. I know. <laughs> what an idiot! What what are they like, the Americans? What they just they always want. They always seriously want to change things, and it's he he wants another game, North versus South. What planet are these fellas on? I really, really don't get it. Get it because I think the thing with these guys as well—they come in and take over the club, and you know, yeah, they do it whatever the way. But now they realise that they've got a voice. They've got, an, you know, an even bigger voice than they've arguably had in in their own country, and that you know, people will, in in Britain will will listen to them because they own, you know, Chelsea Football Club or whatever. But oh, honestly, absolutely, totally makes me laugh. It's going to be interesting what happens at Chelsea. Um, you know, I hope I hope the manager does extremely well. 
um, you know, I had four years at Brighton and still got a lot of friends down there. And they said he's, he's, he's he comes over on on TV. And you think he's just you know a nice soft man. He sit and they say he is, but you know behind that, obviously, like any successful person, um, there's there's a kind of ring of steel, for want of a better description. But it's 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 interesting to see what what Chelsea will do. Um, can he get Obama Yang to play? Which obviously they thought that Tuchel would was going to. So. Be interesting. I don't know. I'm not buying it. I, I can see Mark you lining out against or for, alongside your your friends at Everton and Manchester United and Manchester City against uh, against all the London boys in an All Star game. Those soft Southerners. I tell you what, I'll give you a million quid if you ever see that. Happen. <laughs> <laughs> and by, by the way, where are we going to play in the Midlands, Aston Villa? So none of their players will be playing. Exactly. Yeah, they're not good enough. Right? Yeah. Maybe it could Nuts. be a, a quadrangular tournament. You could have the Northeast versus the Midlands, and it could be six games. Oh, and they let's can make. Get the, let, yeah, let's get the Isle of Wight involved in Jersey and Guernsey and all those boys. And, and the city, enough, the guys, city of Glasgow, it? could be Celtic and Rangers playing together, fighting, fighting each other on the pitch. Brilliant! <laughs> what a good idea. <laughs> Mark, good stuff. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Pleasure. It's, uh, Mark Lawrence in there, puncturing the idea of the North South and uh, Todd Bowley. It's uh, 8.38, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now, time for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! got to change that image for next year because I look like Stay Puff. What? Um you know, just dominating the landscape. <laughs> uh, if you ever saw Ghostbusters. Okay, that's the name of the character. Yeah, the Marshmallow Man. I'm right. just like just dominating the landscape with this massive head. So obviously next year we'll have to do something different. I like it. <laughs> it's, it. It is very, it is a bit, it is a bit, I don't know, it is a bit psychedelic. Are you, well, I think that, that might have been the intention, but are you not dominating the landscape of golf well, chipsters at the well, moment? You, well, that is, a, that is a fantastic pun, Jerry. Uh, it, it is a beautiful pun. Um, 1,000 is what we start with virtually, and we've 1,329, 32.9% profit, three winners in the last five weeks, two of them at 16 to 1, and one at 25 to 1, and all the main headline tip. So all going well, and uh, look, never um, gamble more than you can afford. If you are going to have even a euro each way on, or if you just have an interest, never do it in silly. This is the Fortinet Championship. This is the start of the new PGA Tour season. This is starting at 3 o'clock tomorrow in California at Silverado, designed by Johnny Miller, a tree-lined parkland, par 72 course with Poanoa greens, um, deep rough, and uh, though you're going to need to probably hit in the high teens to win the tournament. Uh, we've gone for a sextet of players. The headline tip is Sahith Thigala who is 28 to 1 for five each way. He's the headline tip. Narrowly missed out in the place of the President's Cup team. Was one of the top college golfers in America. Won all the Player of the Year awards in college golf. Studied locally at Pepperdine University in California and has been a really exciting player in the last year on the PGA Tour. If you've watched the PGA Tour, nearly won in Phoenix, nearly won the Travelers Championship. Has got not great stats, but he's a very artistic player, creative shot maker and had a 64 here a couple of years ago um, at Silverado, Sahith Tagala. I think he's going to be an absolute star. He's 24 
four years of age. He's the headline tip at 28 to 1 for five each way this week. The second one is Patrick Rogers for three euro fifty each way at 80 to 1. Tied for six in this event last year. His second top 10 in this tournament. He's a big hitter. He's a good putter. He once again studied in California at Stanford, was a brilliant college player. Hasn't really made it on the PGA Tour yet, but had a decent enough season last season. And I think he likes the environment. And I think early doors this season, he could do something. Ches Reeve is the horse for the course here. Um, he is also 80 to 1 for 1 euro 50 each way. Uh, one in California back in July at the Barracuda Championship. So the pressure's off him. He's an accurate player. Uh, he has been in the top 35 on his last seven starts in this tournament, including a third a couple of years ago, Ches Reeve. And then a, a three players at 100 to 1, all 100 to 1 for 1 euro 50 each way. Carl Yuan. A Chinese player, 25 years of age, played on the Corn Ferry Tour, led the rankings until the playoffs, bombs it off the tee, hits a lot of greens, complete rookie choice here. And Carl Yuan, a bit of a flyer on him each way. Mark Hubbard is more of a journeyman player, um, twice uh, in the top five back in July, including once in California, has got two top 20s in this tournament before Mark Hubbard. And Doc Redmond was third a couple of years ago, uh, lost his form, but regained his card because of all the lived affections. So he was fortunate enough to gain his card because of about 25 players went off to live um, and he might make the most of a second chance. So what you're telling me is live are creating, the live golfers are creating opportunity yes, yeah, for golfers yeah, on the margins. Yeah, they're actually yeah. good. They're, they're, the, they're, they're the, the good, good guys. guys. They're the good oh, guys. Right. We've, it's, we've it's, had it wrong the whole time. We have. We, it's a good live story today. Um, you know, so we must uh, give a huge amount of credit to live. Uh, so Doc Redman, Mark Hubbard and Carly Wan are the kind of 100 to 1 each way small each way bets. Ches Reeve a little bit bigger in the virtual stakes at 80 to 1. Then Patrick Rogers at 80 to 1 for 350 each way with the headline tip Sahith Tagala at 28 to 1 for 5 each way this is all on otbsports.com we're going to podcast it it's also on the app as well the best of luck are these the hardest tournaments to do because like in Wentworth you're like I can look at John Ram I've got you know five, seven, nine years of him I've got I've got Rory versus uh, Lowry going down the stretch a couple of years ago I know that both of them good chance they're going to be are they are these guys are like you're going deep here I feel that the majors have become quite difficult to do um, because of the depth of talent around. There's maybe 15 to 20 players around the top that can win a major. Uh, and really, I know Rory hasn't won a major in eight years. So I know he's dominant in the game, but he's not dominant in the majors. So could you really could have thought that Scotty Scheffler, you wouldn't have thought at the very start of the year that he would win the Masters and go on the run he went on. Cameron Smith, Matt Fitzpatrick, um, you know... Who won the PGA? I'm trying to remember who won the PGA. Um, who won the PGA? I can't even remember. Justin Thomas. So it, the majors I found really difficult, actually. These tournaments, I'm an utter nerd about. I'm the person who's got no life watching these on Saturdays and Sundays and seeing a lot of this stuff repeat itself. So I actually don't find this tournament as bad as I would find some of the other ones. Okay, well... Uh, is that it for this week? There's that, yeah, that, there's no more. There's no more golf tips um, this week for apart from that. But that's all on on the web, and you know, there's a lot of kind of rationale behind it. But you know, it's it is the first tournament of the season, so you're gonna have to maybe see it 
kind of play out over the next you're, one. You're mentioning John the, the, those Poa Greens, Poa Anua Greens. Yeah, yeah. Like, is that is picking players who put well on that yeah, just based yeah, yeah, on players yeah. who are used to playing on those types of courses? Yeah. Um, so the, the the greens around the states are completely different. So most of the major tournaments are played on bent grass greens. Um, the, in Florida, they play on a, a surface called Bermuda. So Denny McCarthy, for example, is the best putter on Bermuda in the whole of the USA. But in California, because of the you know there's a lot of kind of um, fog and that kind of thing, and the, the greens can get quite bumpy. So players who aren't used to those greens, a lot of players on the, on the tour live in Florida. Um, you have to have a degree, I think, of familiarity with those greens because um, you generally find like Patrick Rogers is a good putter on Poana greens. Mark Hubbard is a good putter. So you can actually you can go into the, there's these stats programs that tell you the best golfers on certain surfaces and the best golfers on certain types of courses. So there's a huge amount of statistical um, tools to help you. And uh, kind of, you know, weeding out a lot of the players that would not be suited towards this this event. And Taylor Pendrith is a guy I really, really like at the moment. I just don't think he's suited to this event this week. Okay, um, so that's this week's episode yep. of Virtual Insanity. As you said, thirty odd percent profit. It's not bad. It's uh, as you say, even outstripping inflation. So. Um, what else is going on, John? Yeah, well, Spurs, obviously, I watched last night. Disappointing. Um, what happened? Uh, I think that they're relying on the wing-backs for creativity. And Emerson Royale, I'm not sure, is the person you want at the very elite level for that team. Darty hasn't got a look in yet. I don't know why. Uh, even Paris is not have the best game. So you have a 3-4-3 system. With um, you're hoping that Kane and Son and Richarlison will kind of and Kane will drop back and be a playmaker. He didn't play that well last night. Kulisevsky actually really made an impact off the bench. But there's a little bit of they're they're, they're expecting the wing backs and maybe the forward players to be the creative sparks in the team because the the pivot in the middle are quite functional players, they're good players, but they're functional players. So I thought at times Spurs looked like they might get something out of the game, um, but they lacked a, they lack a bit of I would call it zip in the team. That they're a bit they're a bit laboured in their build up. They're a bit laboured in their play, and they've only really probably played well for a game and a half this season. The first game against Southampton and the second half against Wolves. So I don't know what the deal is because Youngman's son has completely lost his form. I don't I don't know why. Again, maybe he's trying too hard. Um, defensively, I'm not so. I think Romero's an excellent player, but um, Hugo Lloris made a lot of saves. It was a strange game in, in Lisbon. I think they'll be okay, but um, I don't know whether he worked them too hard in the summer, uh, Conte. Um, it's, there's something missing, and it's hard to put your finger on what it is. At what point do you drop Young Son, or is that uh, interesting to say? Well, I think Richardis, I, th- I think now, you drop him now. Um, and the thing about Conte is pretty much picked his best players, in, you know, that you would think his best players. But he didn't didn't make too many substitutions last night. Like Basuma should have been on because the lads got booked. The um, well, Bentacore got booked. Should have probably made a few more substitutions. Got Sassy on earlier on. Maybe try either um, Jed Spence or, or Doherty down the right. So not so sure at the moment. Um, we'll wait and see what happens in the league. But Antonio Conte, maybe because he's quite a rigid coach in his formations, has got a really really poor record in the Champions League. Maybe it's just not his competition. Um, and Liverpool, I thought, were much better. Um, uh, Nunez will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see by, say, February, March, April, where Nunez will be in terms of his impact. Because obviously you know that Haaland... There's a great article in the UK Times today about how Haaland chose City. And interesting, there's a little tidbit in there that they couldn't get him for whatever reason. And, OK, well, let's try and get Harry Kane. So Harry Kane, according to the UK Times, his brother... And his dad said, yeah, no problem. It's all, all sorted. And then, no, Daniel Levy goes, no, he's not for sale. So it's interesting, the dynamics around that. And obviously, Bayern Munich are reported to be interested in Harry Kane for, for next season. So one call between Guardiola and Erling Haaland. Obviously, there's the emotional connection with his dad, um, Alfinga Haaland. And uh, Erling Haaland has, 
I've been surprised. I thought he was quite a moody character, but when I've been watching him this season, he looks like a guy who really enjoys his football. And like he's just appointment view now this evening against Dortmund at uh, the Etihad Stadium. So it's really all soccer at the moment, folks. I, I'm very surprised that Graham Potter never been to a Champions League game. That is an odd, an odd statistic. Um, like most of us, we're all, we're all, you know, we can all remember our first Champions League game. We've been lucky enough to go. I hope, I, <clears throat> I hope the players don't kind of overreact to that. Because type of team is like, do you know, footballers, uh, herd mentality takes over. You hope that they're a, a, an open enough squad to be like, oh, that's interesting, as opposed to what? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Why should a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Yeah. What, what was your first Champions League game? Okay, uh, it was. Um, I got obviously Tottenham against AC Milan in 2009 in our first season. Was it 2009 or 2011? The first season we qualified anyway for the Champions League under Harry Redknapp. It was a goalless draw. Um, and then I lucky enough to get to the final in 2013 between Munich and Dortmund at Wembley. I remember. So, so. My yeah. first was uh, 2003, Old Trafford, Man United nil, AC Milan won in the last 16 first leg, I think. Hernan Crespo scored the, uh, the winner and Julie ran over to the corner where I was standing with my dad and my brother and celebrated right directly in our faces it was um, one of those things you never forget I always had a disdain for Crespo since then but what a player I can, I can look back now with uh, unbiased eyes and, and appreciate he was a good player but it hurt me at the moment yeah Jerry, have you been to uh, I was at Old Trafford for Man United beating Juventus 3-0 I'm just trying to google what year it was uh, it was Beckham's last season Whatever. when was that 03 was it, it uh, would have been 03 well. was it when he moved 02 03 is his last season it's um uh, yeah, I just can't find it there. I remember being at Manchester United versus Lille one year in the Champions League when Henrik Larsson was on that three-month stint and met him after the match, got his autograph and all the rest. He was only there. I think he scored on the night, but um, yeah, one of those little three-month cult heroes at United. Yeah, it was, it was, it was yeah, March 2011, the Tottenham AC Milan game. Just hearing that music for the first time, oh, the shiver down your spine. Hearing that music for the first time, that Champions League music, it's just something special. <laughs> I don't think that's the game I was at. It, was, it says it's 2-1 where Juventus scored in, the, in deep in 0-2-0-3. There was one of the Ajax players, uh, I don't know if you saw it, before the Rangers game the other day where uh, it kind of zoomed in on him and he was, he, it was his Champions League debut and he was hit, listening to the music for the first time and getting emotional, not emotional in the crying sense, but he was, he was smiling, he was clearly feeling the anthem, which apparently is the same anthem as the Queen's Coronation music. I didn't realise that until I saw that this week. Yeah. Uh, Bizarre. If you listen to the 1950, whatever, 2 Coronation, 53 Coronation, you can hear, you can the, hear it. Can you, yeah. Yeah. you can definitely, like, it's not the exact same, but it's, it's picked from Without the words, obviously. Yeah, without the words. So it's, it's the same music. That is, I never knew this. Yeah. I never knew this. It's the same music. So it's, uh, right. we're going to hear it whenever the King Charles III gets his, uh, gets his crown. We're going to hear the Champions League music. Have you already got it? I missed that. I just assumed they'd already handed that over. I, I mean, uh, isn't, but there's an official, isn't there, crown uh, after like six months, I think, to get oh, right. crown, crown put just in Just in the case, head. it's like he's just on probation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. As he does any, anything else bad. <laughs> as long as he knows, learns how to work pens. That, um, um, that Saudi money story disappeared pretty quickly, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> He'd be a live golfer, would he? Yeah. Well, see, Charles has waited his whole life to to have this little moment uh, uh, some of this did you, uh, some of the stuff yesterday was that 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 uh, that piece of footage between Michelle O'Neill and Prince, and King Charles and Jeffrey <laughs> Donaldson was one of the gas it was it was it I was, missed that I saw the bit with the pen where his pen wasn't working yeah, yeah, yeah again uh, got a little angry yeah the no the, the what the, was the he goes you're, you're you're the leading party now aren't you and she goes and she, she kind of really very respectful yes 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 we are and uh, and Alex Maskey just pipes up just that uh, don't say to Jeffrey. And Jeffrey Donald's just standing, standing there. Right there. <laughs> so it was a. Uh, and then he said something. Um, 
Charles made a kind of a strange quip then. Um, I'm trying to find out what it is. You keep talking there. Yeah, Massey, uh, Massey kind of speaking about the fact that I, I never thought of someone in my position here as a, well, you didn't say it, but as a Sinn Féin person speaking as a mem- uh, Speaker of the House to, uh, to the new king. Um, quite a stark moment. Do you think it had an influence over uh, McLean wearing the armband last night? That, like, um, Sinn Féin have basically signed the uh, the books, have expressed their condolences, have not mm. in any way... He said, see, he said, all that skill and ingenuity after uh, Michelle O'Neill said, uh, yeah, yeah, we are the leading party now. Read into that what you will. <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, I don't want to get inside James McLean's mind and... and Discuss why he did it, but you don't you don't want him um, Instagramming about you. <laughs> well, of course not. But but I think I think maybe like uh, James McLean's issue has never been with the Queen or the King. It's it's always been with um, I guess British Army atrocities in his home city. Um, you know, hence why he said the reason I, do, I, I don't wear the poppy is nothing to do with World War One or two. It's what came thereafter. So I, th- I think yeah, him deciding to wear the the black armband was a little. His own way of... And obviously he stood apart from his Wigan teammates ahead of the Huddersfield game last night. They were all locked in arms and McLean kind of uh, quite noticeably stood slightly to the left. Got the assist for the winning goal as well, McLean, in that 2-1 win. And lovely reception from the Wigan fans after the game. Yeah, was, I, were they happy enough beforehand or was it like... A, oh, and then he, he influences the outcome of the game. They're like, yeah, you're one of ours. Yeah, we probably, always knew. We never doubted you. Is <laughs> that what happened? got them on side, yeah, based on the, the, the assist for the winning goal. Um, but yeah, like... Maybe we do read too much into what James McLean decides or doesn't decide to do, but it's a conversation. It's just a lightning rod, though. He's lightning rod for social media, so... I think he's, like, it's great that people have a view, that people stand for something, you know, you don't, you might not necessarily always agree with everything he says, but, like, he is himself and he is honest and true to himself and when you're talking about sports people, you hope that people will be honest and true to themselves. Yeah, well, we give out about sports people generally and footballers especially when, when they are so removed from society and cultural issues and historical issues and just get on with the game and almost don't pay any attention to what's happening in the outside world. James McLean is fully focused and um, in tune with what's happening All and right. what has happened historically. So, yeah, fair play to him. All right, more from John, of course, on Saturday afternoon and off the ball on Newstalk. You'll hear him on The Breakfast Show on Newstalk as well. OTBIM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. Here's what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio today. Uh, we've got an Irish football special on OTB Gold. It's uh, Shea Given, Niall Quinn, Jason McAteer, all being interviewed by Kevin Caban, and they had cracked that day. Uh, Koi Gig Pod from three, obviously talking about the Galway situation and more. Retro Panel is competitive obsession, and OTV Gold is Colm Gooch Cooper, uh, his career retrospective. The show is live tonight with Will O'Callaghan in the hot seat on the return of Wednesday Night Rugby, as well as Waterford Hurling legend Dan Shannon and much more besides. Make sure you follow us on our social channels. We're on TikTok, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram. And you should subscribe to the Instagram channel because um, that's the quickest way to get on to us. After the break, our independent rugby correspondent, Keen Tracy, is going to join us in studio to preview the start of the URC. OTB AM. Right, the URC is back this weekend. Zebra Leinster is Saturday, 5 o'clock. Cardiff Munster moved, as we know, to Saturday, 3 o'clock. Ulster Connacht is Saturday evening at 7.35. Keen Tracy is with us to talk about all these and uh, the relative situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. Rugby's back properly. This is the grind. Yeah, happy new season and all that. Good to be back. It kind of feels like only yesterday I was in New Zealand covering Ireland, but a lot of time kind of has passed since then. Uh, but yeah, good to have it back. Yeah, um, 
following the Ireland players on Instagram, you realise that uh, many of them are still on holidays mm-hmm. and, um, there and getting are many, married. And there there's, there's a lot going on in the yeah, off season. Yeah. There is. There's like pints emojis and there's yeah, tours yeah. stuff going. And so, but the rugby starting this weekend. Mm-hmm. I was making a case yesterday that actually there are players playing this weekend who will end up in the Ireland squad in the World Cup. That there's still enough room for mm-hmm. you if you believe in yourself and your form. And that this squad, uh, maybe with the, the A um, team going to South Africa, you, you need to play really well for the next couple of weeks. But it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that if you're a winger or if you're a prop, for example, and you tear up trees for the next six to eight weeks, mm-hmm. you could absolutely catapult yourself into at least the fringes of the squad. And then we know what the Rugby World Cup is like. Yeah, absolutely. You know? uh, and I think that's probably one of, been one of the most positive aspects of the Andy Farrell era that he has given players a chance. And I mean, you think of someone like Jameson Gibson Park or Kieran Treadwell who weren't first choice in their provinces. And I don't think anyone would have had Kieran Treadwell down as the breakout star of Ireland's tour. Like he's been around for a few years, but he was really important in Ireland winning a series. So I think Andy Farrell has a real maybe keen eye for, for a player. He, he, he wants players who fit a, a certain athletic profile. We've seen that Treadwell certainly does that. So I think anyone who featured in those Maori games in particular in New Zealand is going to feel like they are in with a chance. I believe the emerging Ireland squad is going to be announced later today and that's going to be very interesting because that's coming up in only a couple of weeks. So. Do you have any instinct? Because the, the, there was a line in, in the press release about the tour that it was like it'll feature a lot of players from the successful underage teams mm. in recent seasons. Now, how far back does that go? Do we go all the way back to like 2015 and you were underage then and now we're going to give you... Do you know? Yeah, like, I'm, the- I'm not sure why they've kind of kept it so ambiguous because... My, from what I understand it's going to be a lot of very young guys so you will see some guys who were involved in the Maori games but not every single one of them which I think initially certainly that was my impression that it was another chance for these for you know whatever you want to call them the A team to, to go away but that's not my impression what, what's going to happen so I think that there's going to be some tricky conversations between the provinces and and the IRFU because we'll say someone like Kieran Frawley um, someone like even Joe McCarthy with Leinster okay he's carrying an injury at the moment might not be the best example but Craig Casey at Munster these guys I would think are going to feature in the province's early plans particularly because the frontline internationals even though they're technically available and aren't going to play for the first couple of weeks you'd imagine so um, what is the preference here is it for them to stay and play games with their provinces or is it to go and play let's face it second rate teams in South Africa so do you think they're the type of players who won't go yeah I, I, I would be surprised yeah I, I'd be surprised okay. I think you're more maybe looking at someone like a guy like Jack Crowley if we, we want to talk about like in the out half position which we're so obsessed with doing so, like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like a Ben Healy or Jack Crowley but again those guys are going to be important to Munster in the early part of the season so it's hard to know maybe you'd even see someone like Charlie Tector or Sam Prendergast who are very very young guys coming through so like, I think realistically they're probably looking further on than the World Cup but if they could get like one one or two gems and I agree with you I think there is still space to go I think someone like um, an Alex Kendellum will be very interesting to see if he goes because he could really make a big impression and it would be very hard to it would be interesting to know how much the Ireland coaches will actually judge those games because I think a lot of it is getting them in the environment and seeing how you know they get used to their structures the day to day intensity of training but then again Andy Farrell isn't the one who's going to be overseeing that and my understanding is and as things stand Andy Farrell isn't even going to travel to South Africa so um, it's a bit muddled but there's a press conference later today Simon Easterby who's obviously going to be the head coach is up so I think there'll be a few interesting questions it's a very interesting scenario, isn't it? If, mm. he, if he doesn't go, it's um, a real sign that actually we're planning very far into the future. And you'd, you'd have to, like, hats off for that type of forward thinking. Mm. Um, 
like the, the thing about it is like a lot of people have kind of got their back up about it particularly supporters on Twitter and like <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to the squad being named if it is later today and you know people are going to be angry that oh so and so isn't in it so you can't kind of have it both ways but um it, like Ireland have haven't done this before within a world World Cup cycle, and yeah. they haven't done well at a World Cup before. I like the concept behind it. I can understand why it will create friction, but I like the idea. Yeah, well, like if if, if they were to take the the team that played the Maori, for example, that was a really good team. Mm. Like in, you know, a really good the, team. Yeah, you'd, you'd certainly uh, like. Um, is somebody like Jordan Larmer going on that and thinking, right, this is great, I'm getting more exposure to the Ireland setup, and I'm going to prove myself as somebody who needs to be in the mm. squad? Or is somebody like Jordan Larmer thinking, why am I not in that squad? I'm, you know, uh, This is it. And I think the, one of the things about the New Zealand tour that kind of got glossed over, and maybe like understandably so because of how well the, the senior team did against the All Blacks, um, the level of progression between the first two Maori games I thought was immense. And it was like, it was a success of coaching as well as the players because clearly the players had taken everything that Andy Farrell and his coaches, you know, had given them. And they were given haven't been over on the ground you know they were given ample opportunity so when that Maori game particularly the first one was on it was the senior team who were training them helping them now it was a bit more muddled in you know the decisive third week but you had like a guy like Pete Wilkins over there who kind of took on more of a hands-on role with that and I know we'll get on to talk about Connacht and the coaching structure but um, So tell us who uh, explain who Pete is for everybody So Peter Wilkins is um, Connacht he's been with Connacht for a while he's kind of looking after their defence he kind of looked after more their attack last year so he's going to be more of a head coach this year Andy Friend has stepped up to be kind of a director of rugby which is a change in structure but they have the same personnel and I think last season was always going to be difficult for Connacht because they basically changed their entire coaching staff there was a lot of kind of new ideas they got Collie Tucker and Mossy Lawler who were both Limerick men who came in like really young talented coaches but they had never obviously been involved properly in senior setup so it was going to take a, a while to adjust and I think that's probably why Connacht season was a bit kind of stuttering Um but it'll be interesting to see like how much I think Andy Friend last season was a de facto uh, director of rugby anyway he kind of did take a step back and was kind of more looking at the overall picture of Connacht obviously there's a lot going on there with you know the new the new pitches being put in at the moment so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens I think over the next season with that Wilkins taking a primary look at defence as well I know like, mm. their Connacht defence last year was pretty mm. shocking I think they conceded twice as many tries as both Munster and Ulster so he's obviously taken the, the, the forefront on that as well yeah, like, and he's he's really highly rated. He was like he's he came over from England, and you know he's done a really good job. And the fact that Ireland took him, you know, was a real I think sign to help out Connacht as well to get him involved in seeing how Ireland how Ireland are trained, the intensity and all that. But it also gives I think Connacht players who who know now that they have a direct line into the coaching staff because obviously you have Paul O'Connell there and that and okay like he's not involved at Munster but you know he's going to be heavily involved so um, it's interesting because there was a lot of talk um, last year that Andy Friend might finish up uh, at the end of the season just gone and now he's obviously gone into the director of rugby role so like I said it'll be interesting to see what happens I'm not sure what Andy's Andy's like long term plans are but he's been such a brilliant success for Connacht um, when you think about how low they'd gotten under Kieran Keane and obviously the highs of Pat Lamb and He's come in, and I know he comes on your show regularly enough, and he's just a, a brilliant guy. Like really, oh, like every time you meet him or mm. talk to him, you come away very enthusiastic about working for him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can see the impact he'd have, and he has an eye for talent as well. We speak about Andy Farrell doing it. Like you think about like Mac Hansen, and they've signed another guy now. Brian Ralston is coming over from Australia as well, and everyone's kind of going, "Okay, is he going to be the next Mac Hansen?" So, no um, yeah, I always go back to a couple of years ago. He came out with a brilliant line that. Um, 
we can't shop in Brown Thomas, we have to shop in Aldi or Lidl. And no offence to obviously those brands, but they were his words, not mine. And they've, by and large, they've done a really good job of it. Like they've signed four Leinster lads who've come in now. I think three of them in particular, I think, are going to, could make a real big difference. You think of Peter Dooley, Adam Byrne, Josh Murphy. And, you know, I would imagine a couple of those guys could have stayed at Leinster and plucked away, you know, been happy enough to pick up games here and there and Josh Murphy had been playing quite a lot of games but they're going out to Connacht now to relaunch their careers and I think with, with Ireland ambitions in mind so um, it kind of reminds me a bit like you know Gabriel Jesus and Zinchenko going to Arsenal bringing that kind of city winning mentality I think that would be huge for Connacht getting those guys into the setup. That That's one thing in the off season that, that has been impressive with Connacht the, the recruitment because when you saw the likes of Delan and, and Arnold and Murphy leaving you're thinking geez, they're going to have to do something here but like Ralston is, is, is a good example maybe Andy Friend's Australian influence had something to do with that as well him coming in but he's Irish qualified yeah as well. probably sent his son out to any bars to, to check around to see if anyone <laughs> anyone was up for coming over to, to, to Galway to live to live in a nice part of Ireland but yeah look I mean they have signed well and you know Josh Murphy's come in but they still do look a little light mm. I would say um, like they've lost the land but they've brought in Josh Murphy it's a bit of a, a like for like but the, the front row in particular you know Peter Dooley's apparently by all counts has been going really well in, in pre-season but he hasn't like he's not a big kind of stocky prop either so um, they, they missed Dennis Buckley a lot last season who's still highly highly underrated Jack Carty is stepping up as captain this season which is interesting I think he'll do I think he'll do a brilliant job in there and he has ambitions to get back into the World Cup squad as well so uh, it's interesting times for Connacht for sure Yeah I wonder like do they bring Jack Carty to South Africa do you know I, there, I think there would be uproar if the Connacht captain was, <laughs> was taken away um, But it might be a good chance for him to be like look I'm, I'm still your guy you know Yeah like it would this is why like this is why I think we'll have a far better idea once we kind of have this press conference yeah. with Simon Eastby to get the logic behind it and like it's not even just uh, so all the provinces have been training with Do you think Simon Eastby was going to tell us that because sometimes he can be a bit spiky with the media yeah, I think he's mellow though in the last. He? I think he's mellow. Yeah, he has been a bit spiky over the years. You're right. Yeah, since, I think he's mellow since the new head coach came in. Yeah, maybe. I think I think a lot of people have mellowed. And honestly, like being in New Zealand, like I've been on a few tours um, under the, the previous regime, it was incredibly relaxed. And even and like, we were successful. Just to, like so, being relaxed it, does not prevent you from being successful. And after the first week, having lost both games, it had the potential to turn sour. There was only a few of us over there cur- uh, covering it. I think it was like five five journalists. Um, so it could have been a very long few weeks but even after the first week you know um, no one got narky no one got sour and I think that was driven by Andy Farrell by all accounts I, I heard through the grapevine that you know in the dressing room after the match he gave this speech apparently and said that we have the All Blacks like you know we really really have them and that could have went one or two ways after the first game after the first game he had seen something they had obviously made some really poor errors and the, the bounce of the ball really did that bit of a cliche but it did go in their favour you think of the breakaway try Ireland were piling on the pressure but he apparently gave this rousing speech and that could have went one or two ways like players could have looked at each other and said what is this guy on but they had fully bought in and everything he had said came true in the next two games if you remember I, you might not have seen it because you're at the game but the TV interview that Peter Romani gave afterwards it, it felt like it, it, he was like we he was really happy. Mm. We'd just been hammered. And he was yeah. like, so obviously he knows a lot more about rugby than uh, than we do. Because yeah. I was like, that's, it seems, what, we just got killed. And it's a tricky balance when you're kind of on, when you're there covering. Because I remember in 2019 at, in Japan, like going into the quarterfinal against the All Blacks, I was, I was really bought into the positivity around the camp. So you can't get burned as well. It does go one or two ways. But there's no doubt that Farrell has created this more relaxed and... 
you know, it's not like kind of the lunatics are running the asylum or anything like that. It's just guys are more comfortable. I mean, you go back to, you mentioned Peter O'Mahony, you go back to him saying last November when he was on the bench that it was the most enjoyable month of his career. You know, and I specifically remember we did a thing with, um, with O'Mahony where I think Quinny was interviewing him and he was talking about how stressed he would get in the week of games and how you know like being in the Shelburne before the matches the stress levels would rise and he found that very difficult to deal with whereas now like maybe it's because his garden is so good or something like <laughs> you know he has just become one of those kind of people who is fully at ease with his role in the team whatever that role may be and and it led to him probably playing the best rugby of his career in over in New Zealand he was absolutely immense and like I think one of the biggest things that the provinces want to see and probably particularly from Munster in terms of Peter O'Mahony and Ty Byrne you would hope that they're going to bring some of that back to Munster now because all the signs that you hear from Munster is that you know they are going to be trying to play more like Ireland it is going to be more aligned there's going to be a big move away from what we'd seen under Johan van Graan and guys like Peter O'Mahony and Ty Byrne who are key parts of that Ireland setup needs to be the ones because I always found it really frustrating that why aren't they coming back? Like you know, maybe they were, but marching into Johan van Graan's office and saying, "What like, are we doing? What, what, why aren't we playing th- yeah. this way? This is the way the game is moving." And Munster are now starting from a lower base because they're a couple of years back because they didn't keep up with the modern trends. But I think guys like Peter Mann, Connor Murray, even Craig Casey, guys who are in regularly in the Munster, the Ireland setup can really drive the Munster. The new era, shall we call it? To, to talk about the Ulster Connacht situation, right? Um, it's interesting to hear that Andy Friend might have kind of put the structure in place and, and may not be uh, there for the, the long term I think that would be really unfortunate for Connacht because it looks like we're progressing quite you know on and off the field it feels like Connacht are fully aligned and having somebody there who kind of has his viewpoint seems very very aligned with how Andy Farrell behaves as well like you mm-hmm. know you can see them both being relaxed when things go bad very passionate about what they're doing very knowledgeable and able to bring people with them so it you know but at the same time, it's clear that the, the IRFU seem like there's a long-term structure there and they're, they're boosting that. Um, I don't country. think you're going to see like a situation where Andy Friend does a Rassi Erasmus kind of on it and, you know, revokes on that clause that's in all the contracts, you know, the get-out clause. So yeah. I don't think Andy Friend is going to do that. But it will, it will be interesting to see what his long-term plans are. He's given a lot to Connacht. That he's a long way from home. Yeah, OK. So um, it, it looks very settled there. And at least there seems like if there is, if this is coming to the end, there's a succession plan. With Ulster, it feels like um, the the array of talent they have is just on the cusp of breaking out, but hasn't quite broken out yet. Yeah, last season was a big, big missed opportunity. Um you go back to the Heineken Cup first of all and think of how well they played over in Toulouse in that round of 16 game they, they were absolutely it was one of the actually I would say one of the, the, the great Irish performances in Europe uh, really really outstanding all the things that have been good about Ulster over the last few years like they have one, one of the most exciting backlines you would say nearly in Europe particularly like the, the centre partnership of Stuart McCloskey and James Hume has been immense for them um, and then they weren't able to back it up the following week at home and they lose to Anton Dupont weaves his magic really late on and they lose it was at 50-49 I think on aggregate off the top of my head which is like a real killer blow but then they kind of regroup and they get into the URC semi-finals and then on the Friday night the Bulls beat Leinster which meant that Ulster would have had a home final and you're thinking okay this now is our time like Leinster had been the one team that you know we've really struggled to get by and they slipped up then against the Stormers to a really narrow late defeat as well so that my big concern would be that will there be a hangover from that coming into coming into this season um 
this squad largely has I would say a familiar look to it they they have brought in a few players but I think the starting team will be pretty similar to what it was but you've got a guy like Jacob Stockdale who's going to come back into the mix now and I think one of the most exciting things about Ulster this season is there's a couple of positions where you're not sure where guys are going to fit like is Jacob Stockdale coming back to play fullback is he coming back to play on the wing Um because Robert Balakoon has, I would say, the right wing slot nailed on. Um, he was really unlucky to, to miss out on the yeah. New Zealand tour because they had, the Ireland coaches had really high hopes for him and I wouldn't have been surprised to have seen him get some minutes in, in the Test Series. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. Stockdale comes back. He, he looks in, in good nick. He's been training well by all accounts. Um, and he's become the forgotten man of Irish rugby, which is absolutely nuts to think. Like he's still a really young guy. He was on the same uh, under twenties team who reached the under twenties uh, World Cup final of with James Ryan, Andrew Porter. So we kind of just forget about him a little bit. And then, well, also his try scoring record at international level was absolutely ridiculous, incredible. And like teams definitely did kind of figure him out a bit. And you know he needs to brush up on his defence, but so did James Lowe and you look at James Lowe now who's a much older player so well a few years older so you talk about like when you talk about hangover from last year what about the, the fact that and maybe we could read too much into this the, the, the team were in Glasgow last Friday ready for the match mm. the pre-season match obviously the, the game didn't go ahead after the Queen's passing but that was probably an opportunity for some players to put their hands up and, and get into the team for this this weekend and when you're starting off with, with an Interpro especially you kind of have to get off uh, straight off the bat with a good performance like yeah. last weekend is a bit of a it's a bit of a downer for Dan McFarland. Yeah, and they've been kind of not been shy in saying how kind of disruptive it was. The kind of pre-season uh, schedules have been interesting. As Leinster only opted for one game against Harlequins. Connacht's played two, but played them within a couple of days of each other with two separate teams. And Munster was, was more traditional. They played two games. So that's been kind of interesting as well. The one thing we probably should mention and we haven't done yet is the World Cup looms large over this season as well. So I think you're going to see guys' minutes managed more than ever now coming into this season. So how much are they actually going to play in the URC? Again, you're probably talking about the starting test team. It's really such a balancing act though, mm. isn't it? Because you really want to put them under a bit of pressure to make sure that their performance doesn't mm. dip and that they're not complacent the way the last team was. Completely yeah. complacent. Everybody knew what the starting 15 was going to be the whole way through. Yeah, and you have the South Africans coming into the URC as well makes it so different because the the Ireland players could like get far better challenges than they would have ordinarily, you know. So it the, the dynamic has shifted a bit. Yeah. Now the the obvious thing to say is that the Springboks are still playing in the Rugby Championship, so they're in a similar situation in that their their frontliners won't be playing for a few weeks as well. But even the second string like Bulls team like as well like they're pretty awesome so it's kind of a scary prospect when you hear Dan McFarland during the week saying he expects two South African teams to kick on mm. this year in the URC from last year it's like fairly daunting when you see what they did last year and you expect them now obviously as you said the rugby championship has to finish for the full squads to come back in but if they kick on for any in any way from last year they're bit of a, a force to be reckoned with and that's what makes it so exciting like the league I know it was like an all South African final and it probably wasn't the, the best spectacle but they offered loads throughout the, throughout the tournament and you know the, the physicality is the one thing that everyone will always talk about when it comes to the African teams and I think that's the big issue Ulster are going to have again this season is can this pack get the back line involved in the play because uh, we talked about Jacob Stockdale what position is he going to play Michael Lowry I think is a really interesting one they have just on the website here and they have him listed as a, a fly half that, which I think is very very interesting because like when when you have a utility player normally they put down both positions so well, so there's loads of them who are like Angus Curtis fly half centre yeah there you go yeah. there's a few of them there who have that so. um, or, or uh, centre wing designation full back wing Ethan McElroy but not not with Mike Lowry fly half 
and anyone who anyone who has watched Michael Lowry from a young age in school where he won I think a couple of, of Ulster Senior Cups um, in, in his time would tell you that out half is his best position it's probably taken him a little bit of time and um, you know Billy Burns has been really trusted he's captained Ulster a couple of times and Dan McFarland likes him but I'm not sure if you're going to win a URC or a Champions Cup with Billy Burns as your 10 and that might might sound harsh, but that's just that's just my honest opinion on it. And I think it'd be really interesting to see if Lowry gets gets a chance. But it doesn't matter who you have at out half unless your pack can can get you the platform. And I think the Ulster front five still looks to me a little lightweight when it comes to the business end of the season. Uh, I think they're still hugely reliant on Ian Henderson. You would like Kieran Treadwell wasn't first choice last season, like Alan O'Connor. Uh, is, and so was uh, Sam Carter was sometimes ahead of Treadwell as well but like I said at the start of this conversation like Treadwell was amazing in New Zealand and he's a guy now you'd really expect to kick on and Treadwell and Ian Henderson second row partnership looks far more dynamic than, Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, than it did last season but you know they brought in a one time prop Jeffrey Tumanga Allen as well but I thought Tom O'Toole was one of the young guys who really went well in New Zealand and he's starting out to come into his own and come you to expect come the World Cup that he'll be nearly backing up Ty Furlong Will Allison back in the fold as well which is another addition yeah I think he's still a couple of weeks away and you know I think we're kind of gone past the stage of like you know saying oh Will Addison would be great at full back because like he's just must be one of the most unlucky guys in Irish yeah. rugby and you, you speak about Jacob Sockdale being the, the forgotten man but I just don't think Ulster can be kind of holding back waiting for Will Addison to come back and everything will be okay because he's had such bad injuries and you don't know if he'll ever be the same again and fingers crossed he will but if he did absolutely he is an outstanding player really versatile and they're the kind of guys who when it comes to picking a World Cup squad who can comfortably play in the centre who can comfortably play at full back they're the guys who always make up those kind of you know the extra couple of places in, when you're nailing down a short squad Nathan Doak is 20 he'll be 21 in December is it too soon for him? Not at all. I think he's was really putting the pressure on John Cooney and, you know, there was a lot of talk that John Cooney might leave last season and while Ulster fans definitely would have been disappointed about that, I think there was kind of a feeling that, okay, well, Nathan Doak is coming through here and he's only 20 and he's playing this well. He'll be, I think he'll be very interesting one about the emerging Ireland squad because I think that's the profile of player who, all things being equal, the IRFU would love to have for like four whatever it is they're going to be in camp for four weeks or whatever it is um, they would love to get their hands on him like I can see him making close, a push for the Ireland squad yeah course. absolutely yeah um, and he, he's a goal kicker as well like he's got a lot of strings to his bow and like, he's like you can see him like he's a bit like Craig Casey and like he's so vocal on the pitch and, and that's what you want so that's the type of profile I think they want to see you know in, in training and in the setup, how does he act in meetings and stuff? But like I said, he is definitely going to be a part of Ulster's plans. So, so just on that emerging Ireland, like do you, do you think each province is going to be um, equally affected in terms of the players taken, or is, is Leinster going to have to I carry the load here? You'd or? imagine Leinster will. Leinster always just by pure playing numbers. Leinster yeah. are usually going to be the the bulk suppliers. But um, but the Ulster Academy. This is this, one of the reasons why. And I was writing about this in today's paper. One of the reasons why I'm so optimistic now, and there is such a feel good mood around Ulster, which wasn't always the case in the last few years. Is their academy is now starting to produce homegrown yeah. talents. You look at some like Ethan McElroy's coming through. You know, Tom O'Toole has come through. Ruben Crothers was captain the the Ireland under twenties to a Grand Slam recently. Um, 
so there's a steady stream of guys coming through and it felt like for a while there the, the academy had gone a bit stale um, and now you're starting to see them come through and it's the same kind of in Munster that you know when, when supporters see their own players coming through and getting chances like Nathan Doak is another brilliant example like it makes you feel kind of good about yourself and your chances going into the season so there are reasons to be optimistic for sure for Ulster but I would worry that the hangover last season I still think their front five is a little lightweight Okay, uh, what success for Connacht this year? Back in the Champions Cup, I'd imagine they're hoping for like a, a good run at the Challenge Cup. Like, there's no reason why they shouldn't be going all out to try and win the Challenge Cup. Depending on, I suppose, if any friend and Pete Wilkins look at you know trying to concentrate on the URC to, to finish in the top eight to get to get in there uh, to the playoffs even. Um, but I think a run at the Challenge Cup, the final, the European finals around in Dublin this year. Um, so, uh, like last season was such a disappointment for Connacht that you feel like the only way is up you know they really underperformed by their own high standards there's going to be a great buzz in Galway you know they're they're the new pitch is being redeveloped so they're going, to, they're going to be playing away from home they've got a really really tough start to the season um, I think it's October next month by the time they play their first game at the sports ground but they're going to want to you know, kick on for that feel good atmosphere because there's been a lot of talk about this redeveloped pitch for so long yeah. in Connaughton it's finally happening so. was that pitch, like, how important is that pitch because like the last five times at home last season they have this attacking style of rugby so you'd imagine that a pitch like a 4G pitch will play into their hands yeah, but they probably need the the dome, the Connacht dome, to you know protect them from the elements. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like true. you know, they're going to have the the fancy pitch that will allow them play you know the high tempo rugby they want. But what happens when the Galway, the Galway weather comes in? You're kind of <laughs> counterproductive. So maybe the next step is to to get one of those fancy domes over. I'm just looking at their opening fixtures, Connacht. Like they face all three Irish provinces in the opening mm. five games. Six out of pros actually in the first eleven, and you have away days against the Stormers and Bulls as well in there. So like, in terms of fixtures. The start for Connacht is, is pretty brutal on paper. It doesn't get much worse really for them. And like, like we just touched on there, the games are all away from home as well. Yeah. Um, so the, the start of the season could really set the tone. I mean, if they pick up a couple of results there, you know, they could kick on. But if they were to lose a few on the bounce, then it's going to be, I think, really tough for them. Um, OK, the other things that we need to talk about are the situation at, at Munster. Um, the notion that they're going to be more aligned with Ireland is very welcome they have the players to do it it didn't make any sense to the the la, I, uh, not to pour on and pile on again but the last few years I think are going to come to be looked at as a great lost opportunity for Munster where we didn't see any signs of progress we didn't really <coughs> see the team if, if there was ambition in the backroom team which we're told there was for the style to evolve they clearly weren't good at getting the players to do that or put the players in the position to do that. So um, is, it, is it a brand new regime with all of the changes in the backroom team? Like, is there, is there anything that we can look at that Graham Rentry is going to bring from the past and go, OK, we have this to build on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure there is. Like, I mean, he was still he's still going to be doing the scrum, you know, so you're going to still have the same scrum coach. Um, I think the biggest thing you'll probably find is that he will give more control to his fellow coaches. I'm I'm still not sure how much control like someone like Stephen Larkin actually had over the backline. Um was it Johan van Gran who was laying out the even though he wasn't necessarily the attack coach, my sense is that he probably was calling most of the shots, but at the same time Stephen Larkin, even before he came over, was shown to be quite a conservative coach. So like pound for pound he was one of the most disappointing I would say coaches to have come in when you think about his reputation as a player one of the all time greats and the players did speak positively of in terms of 
his one-on-one work that he did with them and stuff, which made me think more that he wasn't having maybe an, an overall say in terms of how they wanted to move forward. But I'm not, not sure how, how that went. But I don't think any Munster fans were losing sleep over Stephen Larkham going home either. They certainly weren't about Johan van Graan. Um So it'll be interesting. I think Mike Prendergast coming in, Munster had to work bloody hard to get him back. He was still contracted to Racing, uh, so they probably had to pay a bit of compensation to get him out, which Irish rugby probably doesn't do really that often. So that shows you how highly he was rated. The fact that Racing want, had given him, he got a, a long term. I think when he signed his latest contract, he got like a five year deal, and like that is unheard of in rugby. So that's how happy like Racing were. And you think about some of the best attacking backs you know you have in, in European rugby certainly so I think Mike Brendergast will be given much more of a say and certainly from what I'm hearing in training is that um, it's a much different much different atmosphere much different mood now of course people are going to say that when a new coach comes in anyway but I truly believe that that is the case because there's a much bigger focus has been put on tempo um, I've heard chaos has been mentioned to me a couple of times so all these buzzwords which the likes of Leinster have been doing since basically Stuart Lancaster came in Munster are now playing catch up and finally seeing that this is the way to move forward and you know like at times the players it, are brilliant yeah absolutely it, like they have the players to do it and there were times during the Van Grand era like ironically a lot of time when the younger guys were playing you think back to that Scarlet's game last season when they were brilliant so um, there's no doubt that they have the, the attacking talent. I think they probably have similar problems, I would think, to Ulster in that their front row is still an issue. And it's probably a bit puzzling that they haven't kind of put more stock into that. Now, obviously, they have two young tight heads coming through, but I feel like we've been talking about these two guys for the last couple of years. And it does take time for for tight heads and props to develop but Kenya Knox and Roman Salanoa uh, this is a really big season for them Munster have let John Ryan go um, didn't offer him a new contract and I think a lot of Munster supporters will have been disappointed about that like Kenya Knox you mentioned like he, everyone talks about him as one for the future but yeah, he's 23 now like, it, yeah. and, but, like I mean um, Stephen Archer is the only really experienced mm. tight head left so it's probably time for him to step up and you'd imagine he'll be used a lot more this, this season I think for sure he will. well you have to because like I said they've left yeah. go John Ryan and you know John Ryan was a really good servant for Munster really reliable and the previous season they left James Cronin go so yeah. it's been interesting uh, I think Roman Salanoa like if he can stay fit I actually saw him in the Limerick Milk Market a couple of weeks ago buying his bread or whatever and yeah he is he is a big big man um, but the problem is trying to keep him fit so um we just don't know how good these players are but Graham Rountree has worked with them for the last few years and if he can get even one of them to really break through I think Kenyon Knox is probably the one they're looking at purely because he's been able to be able to keep fit uh, basically but you know there's still a bit of reliance on you know Dave Kilcoyne is going to come back but Josh Richardy had a brilliant breakout season and I think he can really kick on as well he looks I think he was unlucky not to go to New Zealand in the summer and they brought in Chris Moore as a hooker you know young guy a bit of an unknown quantity um, but hooker has been a bit of an issue as well and like all these issues kind of will crop up more when you're playing the South African teams Um, so it's a big season for Munster but I think you know all the coaches who have done interviews Roundtree Prendergast and Leamy over the last couple of weeks they've all used the word patience and I think that is going to be the key and Munster fans definitely don't want another period of transition but realistically this is what it is because if you want to move away from the game plan which evidently didn't work under Johan van Graan then it's going to require patience Malachi Fakatoa is the obvious marquee signing in from Wasps but mm. like 
different kind of player to mm. Dale Ender. The, the comparisons are going to be made obviously between the two of them, but stylistically slightly different yeah, player. For, for sure, yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if he, if they see him as a 12 or a 13, would they look at maybe playing Chris Farrell, who's obviously been playing 13 in a 12. I'm not sure how they're going to do it because a lot of Fekito is going to best rugby would have been played at 13, but you'd imagine the first choice pairing but it's probably going to be Fekitoa and Chris Farrell but then again the things you hear about Antoine Frisch who's come in from Bristol he's like raw but really really exciting and he could be a bit of a wild card uh, signing a lot of supporters maybe won't have seen a lot of him but he Bristol were really gutted to lose him Pat Lamb uh, they didn't want to leave him go at all so maybe he's coming over and Munster have kind of had big plans for him to, to become first, uh, first choice centre and I think probably no harm because they didn't really get the best out of Chris Farrell I think you know he is he's much more than Munster were showing him to be and I think on the back of that his Ireland chances have been hurted uh, have been hurt um, because yeah he's he's got good hands he's skillful uh, but Munster were using him much more as kind of like a one-off kind of crash ball which was kind of you know the South African mould he was Johan van Grand style mm, but that's not going to be the case now under Mike Prendergast so there's there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic you've Dennis Leamy coming back and He's definitely going to add an edge, I think. Yeah, like I, I do think that asking the Munster players to offload, we're going to reveal the fact that they're really good at it. Like like Ireland have become really good. Now, think back to uh, that period of transition when Andy Farrell came in and um, some people were saying, oh, Farrell's not going to make it as Ireland coach. This is terrible. What, what's he doing? There's no style. There's no plan. And uh, over a period of time, my cat and him... Mm-hmm. got the players together and said this is what we're trying to do keep going it's going to come to eventually it'll come to fruition so it could be two or three months yeah. week in week out with this monster team before we actually see them being able to do what they're trying to do and there's going to be a lot of drop balls there's going to yeah, be a yeah. lot of knock-ons in the meantime but I don't think monster supporters will, will mind necessarily over that if they can see a long-term plan and they're sticking with it that it doesn't just happen one week which was happening the previous week that they were throwing around the ball but the next week they were keeping it tight and there are a lot of similarities I think between Andy Farrell taking over from Joe Schmidt and Graham Rowntree taking over now because Rowntree has had a front row seat for what worked in Munster and what didn't work. And that he seems like that a good character. Good character, like he's unbelievably popular with the players, um, the supporters as well. He's a bit of old school. Yeah. Um, and I think seeing what didn't work, I think over the last couple of years, is a massive advantage because when Andy Farrell took over and the results didn't go well, people were going, "Oh, well, this is just a continuation of you know the end of the Joe Schmidt era. Like, what's going on here yeah. and stuff?" And then all of a sudden, it started to click. So I think he'll probably be having a lot of conversations with Andy Farrell, Graham Rowntree. They obviously go back a long time just to see you know how he best went around that and that's probably one of the big advantages of the Irish rugby system that you can have that kind of conversations and it's fed down from the top whatever about the young props that we've been talking about uh, for years at Munster we've every year said it's a big year for Joey Carberry it's a big year for Joey Carberry yeah but I think again in my Prendergast I think he's got a really good attack coach who will look to play to Joey Carberry's strengths which again I'm not sure how much that happened in the previous era obviously injuries you know went against him um, he, did, he did okay I thought in, in New Zealand you know he saw out a couple of the games I think his defence is something that is going to have to be a big uh, focus point for him this season I think it became evident last season that opposition teams were targeting him I think even more than ever but and it's no like it's not down to the lack of bravery or anything because he really does put his body on the line. But maybe it's a technique issue. And someone like Dennis Leamy, who was Leinster's contact skills coach, could be the one to you know tighten up a couple of nuts and bolts with that. So every and, every out half has this conversation about them. Like if you think back to O'Gara and even mm-hmm. Sexton, it was like oh Sexton's 
tackle style is the reason he's getting so many injuries. Yeah. You know. And he's got a couple of players putting pressure on him now in Ben Healy and Jack Crowley, which is no harm as well. So it's the out half position I think is, is healthy in Munster. It's certainly not like the front row stocks. Do they need to reach uh, like what's the point of reaching another semi final and get beaten? But if they if they were to play really well over the course of the season, do they need silverware this year for that to be a successful year? Eleven years into trophy like. Yeah, it's, it's getting yeah. harder and harder. It is. I, I, it's silverware realistic at the end of the season. Maybe if it all clicks within two or three months, but I would because I, I'm expecting such a big kind of sea change. I think it could take even longer than two or three months. And it, it's not like the players are not going to be able to do it. But there's a lot of new ideas. We spoke about Connacht, you know, last season. A lot of new coaches coming in and getting their ideas across. That does take time. Like people have to change their habits and stuff. So um, I think. I'm not sure if if Munster don't win silverware, would the season be a failure this year? I don't think it would be. I think if their style of play, of play has enhanced and like supporters can see that there's a long-term vision here and this is how... It's, got, it's identity. Munster kind of lost their identity over the last couple of years. You weren't sure what they were about, how they were trying to play because it kind of jumped from one week to the other. But if Munster supporters can see you know a bit more of like they don't want to lose everything you know the, the edge that the pack had up front which Roundtree was obviously a part of that with Johan van Graan and like, like van Graan did do some good stuff as well I'm not trying to totally like bag the guy at all like and he was hugely popular with the players too but there's definitely going to be a shift away from that and if you can if he can have the hard edge of the pack the Munster backline have shown you need to see the the quality that they have in it and like someone like Fekatoa coming in now adds a different kind of dynamic to what Damien Delende as, as much as D- Damien Delende was a really good player for Munster like unbelievably he was probably one of their best players I would say over the last couple of years like really consistent but you have a bit more maybe of a spark if Fekatoa can, can stay fit so um, I think it's exciting times for Munster for sure Is Snyman going to play? Do we know what his uh, return mm. date is? It's No it's um you can understand why they're not putting a time frame on it, but I think the longer it goes on, the more concerned you'd be. Like we've no idea when he's going to going to be back. I was kind of you know looking through photos and training. He didn't seem to be there. Maybe he was off doing something else. But like they're going they're going to be ultra ultra cautious. It's very transformative to have him in your team. And like how quickly will he get back up to speed? A- absolutely, and he he is like the definition of a game changer. And it's been really unlucky. Munster have been really unlucky, but he's been really unlucky as well because he doesn't want to be sitting sitting at home in the, in the rehab room or whatever but I think the big thing is you know the November internationals are coming up there's a World Cup year like the last thing Munster want is him just to get fit when Ireland are about to play South Africa sure. at the start of November and all of a sudden he's back in the box squad and then you don't know what's going to happen over what's going to be a really busy month for them as well so Munster you know in line with South Africa to be fair have worked really hard to get this guy back and the last thing they want to be doing is working really hard to get him back just to make sure that he's okay for South Africa to go and win the World Cup again next year. You know, they need to get something out of him as well. So, fingers crossed we do. And the very little bits we've seen from from Munster, you can see what he's capable of. All right. We always get accused of um, doing too much Leinster here. We haven't done any Leinster. So, <laughs> uh, success this season for them is a trophy, right, after last year. The devastation of not winning a trophy oh, yeah. has, like resulted in them looking at themselves and bringing Declan Darcy in and just trying to change things around a little bit. Um, Where does their belief that they're going to be better this season than last season, where does that have to come from? It comes from within. Like, I don't think, I don't think they'll be ripping everything up and starting again. Like, they absolutely won't. But what, what, the most interesting thing about Leinster's disappointing season last year was the fact that they got beaten by La Rochelle again. So, 
when they got beaten the previous year in the semi-final we heard so much that you know okay we've got to look at ourselves how can we beat a team like La Rochelle then sure enough they get La Rochelle in a final and are unable to beat them but Leinster went into that final definitely feeling like they had changed from the previous season that they were far better equipped to deal with a team like La Rochelle and then the one team that they were trying to prepare for ended up beating them again so I think that that will have rocked particularly someone like Stuart Lancaster who would have been really the one with Leo Cullen obviously working on the game plan okay how are we going to fine tune this so it's been interesting like you touched on Declan Darcy coming in um, Andrew Goodman coming in for the Crusaders I think they're going to try and tap into him a lot to try and get Crusaders into Leinster and Crusaders have struck up a brilliant relationship during lockdown the first lockdown they were doing lots of kind of virtual matches against each other okay if we were to go here what would you do blah 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 kind of attack versus defence right so who's Goodman what does he do He's going to be the backs coach, so he's replacing Felipe Contepomi. So he's coming in from the Crusaders, really highly rated, and he'll bring fresh ideas as well. And I think, like Stuart Lancaster, runs the attack and the defence in Leinster. He's just he just does everything. But I I have a sense that they might lean on Goodman mm-hmm. a little bit more because they value so much of what the Crusaders do, and they see a lot of their kind of culture, their style of play in in what they do. So yeah, like it's going to be it's going to be really interesting because again. With the World Cup coming at the end of the season, Leinster are obviously going to be the bulk suppliers to the Ireland squad. They're going to be hampered more than most in terms of guys' game time, how often do they get to play. But like as ever, every season, there's a lot of good, lot of good young players coming through in the in the Leinster Academy. Um, or from the Leinster Academy, we touched on the Munster props. There's a young loosehead coming through who's been injured, uh, Michael Milne. Um, he's definitely one to keep an eye on he's a loose I think he's about 23 now didn't get to play much last season but you know Keane Healy is what 35 now pushing on um, I would expect him to play a lot of games this season um, and yeah like they're they're not going to the, the big question is is Kieran Frawley going to play 10 is he going to play 12 where's he going to play check check what he's registered on the Leinster website yeah. maybe there's been a, a subtle change but um, yeah like there's they've brought in Charlie Natoy from Leon who, who got, got a couple of caps for the All Black um, realistically he's not going to be first choice you'd imagine because you're going to have Gary Ringrose and Robbie Henshaw fly half yeah that's what it says <laughs> there you go the website never lies the promises <laughs> are playing mind games with us already so it's going to be it's going to be really really interesting because like if, if you remember uh, Harry Byrne got injured in the first week in, in, in New Zealand sorry and the plan 100% was I know this was for him to start in the first Maori game Kieran Frawley was going to be playing 12 and then there was lots of jigging around because he got injured late in the day in training so Ireland hadn't even planned to play Kieran Frawley there they definitely I would imagine they probably would have looked at him maybe in the second half in, in one of the games but I thought he went really well he had like he had a tough enough day as they all did in the first one but he kind of typified the improvement I think that that Maori team made going into the second game kicked brilliantly um, so it's going to be very interesting to see you know Leinster really trusts Ross Byrne Harry Byrne is another guy who just hasn't been able to keep fit um, and yeah like will, will he as we said at the start of the conversation will um, Frawley go on the emerging Ireland tour I think he's too important nearly for Leinster but at the same time if he goes and play, like starts two of the games at 10 for Ireland Simon Eastby comes back and says you know this guy has really pushed on since the summer because any of those guys who were in the summer would have been given feedback by Andy Farrell and the coaches like the next time you're in camp this is what you want to see and because you're not going to have your Johnny Sexton's your Tyg Furlong's you know the leadership group in, in the, the first choice team you're going to be looking to the likes of those guys who were on the Maori team to, to, lead. to, to lead it which yeah. is huge as well so um, it'll be interesting because 
like I said Leinster are going to be both suppliers probably to the emerging squad and certainly they will be to the the World Cup squad at the end of the year Alright the World Cup officially the hype train starts today because <laughs> if the season starts and it, it ends with the World Cup really I mean obviously it's this Yeah the some, next some people will say it's next season thing but I always feel like it's the end of this season really. Well it is because the team that you're selecting for the World Cup is based on this year's mm-hmm. uh, form and achievements ideally as opposed to stuff they've done historically so uh, it's ground zero for our World Cup countdown um, I hope you're all ready for this. It's good to be Bu- back. Buckle up. <laughs> Keen, good stuff. Thanks a million for that. Uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Zebo's going to be unreal under Mike Prendergast. They worked together at Racing and he was amazing, says Peter M. Very much looking forward to seeing what happens with that. Um, that's pretty much your lot for today. We'll be back tomorrow. As I said earlier, uh, Will is uh, in the hot seat tonight. Uh, good luck. OTBAM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.